the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. This episode is over two hours long, and it still wasn't nearly long enough to cover all there is to talk about. In this episode, I talked to Dr. David Kucher, a.k.a. David Gold, about Frank Lee Morris and the Anglin Brothers. Dave is the author of My Dance with the Zodiac Killer, Stalked by a Psycho Killer for 30 Years, Volume 1. In his book, he tells us all about his encounters with Frank Morris. If these names sound familiar, it's because Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, John and Clarence, were the ones that escaped from Alcatraz in June of 1962. According to Dave, they are responsible for some of the most famous crimes in American history, such as the Zodiac killings, Black Dahlia, Texarkana Moonlight murders, John Benet Ramsey, and the hijacking of Northwest Orient Flight 305. Yes, Frank Morris is D.B. Cooper. Dave knows it was Frank Morris behind it all because he heard it firsthand. This story is mind-blowing. So be prepared for this episode with my good friend, Dr. David Kucher. All right, Dave. So you went to Mexico in high school to learn Spanish in preparation for college. Is that right? Correct. In preparation for medical school. Okay. And where did you go to medical school? I ended up going to chiropractic college in Pasadena, Texas, but my dad wanted to send me to Guadalajara back then. A lot of Doctors were sending their kids to Guadalajara to, to the medical school there. So you spent a lot of time in Mexico City? Off and on, yes. Throughout the throughout my life, as a matter of fact. And you had a chance encounter with someone down there. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? Walking down the street to go to the restaurant. And this is the first chapter in my book, My Dance with the Zodiac Killer. And this is how it starts out, how I met Frank Lee Morris. Who I, whom I never knew who he really was until I started writing my book, which was probably at least five years ago. Somewhere in there, I figured the whole thing out, researching different things for the book, which started out to be about D.B. Cooper, but ended up finding out that D.B. Cooper was Frank Morris, who was my friend in Mexico City. Friend, I put in quotation marks, okay, because he tried to kill me every time I turned around. But anyway... Yeah, I'm walking down the street, and he walks up behind me. Hey, gringo, where are you going? Again, this is chapter one in my book. And I, well, I'm going to the I thought we were going to have a fight because he was running at me when I turned around. So I got ready to fight. It was no big deal to me. I was a wrestler in high school, and I was a champion, and I loved fighting back then. <laughs> I'm going to take this guy down in Mexico City. No, he puts his hand on my shoulder. No, no, I'm just kidding, man. I just wonder. I knew, I knew you wouldn't understand. Uh, I mean, I knew that you would probably like to hear someone speak in English because nobody around here that speaks English. Again, this is how chapter one starts out in my book. I'm telling you that 
that story that that he that happened back then and you know he said a lot of things uh, that interested me he said something about he showed me a comic book with a dan cooper comic book and asked me if i would like the picture that was on the front and i told him i did that i had almost bought that comic i was in the comic books and i had almost bought that comic book back home but it was not in english and i you know i couldn't i could understand some of it's in danish and danish is similar to english but i couldn't understand all he goes yeah yeah that's it's in danish and uh, he said no i was just wondering if you like the idea of this guy you know jumping out of the airplane and all that and i'm like yeah yeah i'm wondering why is he asking me this right I don't know what all happened, but, you know, uh, when I started writing my book, it was about D.B. Cooper and that encounter because he told me about the jump. I had got the timelines mixed up, I think, when I wrote the book because I thought he told me all of this after the jump, and it wasn't. It was before because I do know that he told me that he planned that jump for one full year before he did it. Yeah, he, he planned that jump for a year, and I, he was telling me about it before it actually happened. And I went back home and talked to the police about it. And at the time, I was trying to get on the police department because I was interested very much in becoming a policeman. But I was too young at the time. Uh, but they would come around where I worked and, you know, we, uh, we would talk about it. And I explained to them about this guy. And they go, man, I think you met the Zodiac killer. And I go, you know something? He kept saying stuff about Zodiac. And I. That's what the police said to you? Yeah. Yeah. The police knew that I was meeting with someone that they suspected was Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers. And they suspected that he was the Zodiac killer way back. Uh, you know, well, that was in 1970, I think was the first year I went there. And they had suspected before that because there was a highway patrolman in my neighborhood where Frank and the Anglins hung around with right after they escaped from Alcatraz. They hang or hung around in that neighborhood in Buffalo Estates. That's all in my book. This whole story is in my book. And they, um, you know, they were killing little kids in the neighborhood and they were always trying to get me, but I was really blessed. I always got away, but they started picking on me when I was five years old and I learned really quick how to outsmart them, you know, and I, I don't really believe it was all me that did it. I had some help from somewhere, but I don't know. So you said you saw the Dan Cooper comic before he pulled off the hijacking and it was in Danish. And you saw this in Mexico. How did he no. get a Danish okay. comic book? Good question. Good question. Number one, it was on the shelves in America. I had seen it in Florida before I went to Mexico. I went to Mexico on a bus. I rode four days and three nights to get there. And I thought, you know, I need something to look at or I'm going to be really bored. So I went to get some comic books. And that was one that really that picture of Dan Cooper jumping out of the airplane on the front was very good artwork. And I was really interested in reading the comic book. But when I started looking at the words, it's like, I can't read this. It looks like English, but it's not English. And uh, then when I get there, he pulls out the same comic book and shows it to me. And I'm like, yeah, I've seen that. I almost bought it, but I couldn't read it. And I go, it looks like it's English, but it's not. And he goes, yeah, it's Danish. I'm pretty sure it was Danish. I, you know, I'm, I'm guessing, but uh, they tell me that book, that that comic book was uh, distributed in Canada or, or printed in Canada or something. I don't know, but I recall him saying it was Danish. And did he tell you anything else about the planning for the hijacking? No, he didn't tell me he was planning a hijacking. He just wanted to know if I, he just wanted to see if I was interested in this 
thing and that he was thinking about doing something that, you know, involved some of these things. And he wanted to see if I would be interested in it. What he was, I guess, using me for at that point was, you know, will this catch America's eye? Because he was all about making himself famous or infamous, however you want to look at it. <coughs> he didn't come out. This is something you need to understand. He didn't come out and say, hey, I'm Frank Morris. This is the Anglin Brothers. And we like to kill people. We're the Zodiac Killer. We murdered a few people, had a whole lot of fun, and we're going to go hijack an airplane. That's not what happened, okay? This guy deceived me all my life, just like he deceived the rest of America and the rest of the world. I can't believe that I fell for it, but a lot there were a lot of traumatic events in there where he tried to kill me, and I think I was shutting a lot of it out because of that. And when he would try to kill me, I never knew it was him because in the day I would see him, he would be my friends. The Anglin brothers would stay at a distance. They would catch my eye, but not enough for me to really memorize who they were. And then at night they would be trying to hunt me down. And, you know, I'd be busy getting away. I wasn't busy taking a description. And that's something that part of the reason I wrote the book is to get people to understand, you know, if you feel the least little bit negative. You're walking across a parking lot, somebody jumps out of a car way over there and it just makes you nervous, get a description. <clears throat> That's one of the best pieces of advice I could possibly give anybody. Because I never what? got their description and when I would see him again the next day, I didn't even know it was him. Why do you think they were after you? <laughs> People ask me that question and it has it makes me laugh because let me tell you what. Uh What's the best way to say this? Why does a serial killer, why does a serial killer pick a certain victim? One simple reason, because they're there. All right. May sound like a joke, but in a way it is, but in a way it's not. Because they, you know, when a guy walks out on the street and says, I'm going to kill somebody. And he starts looking around. Well, I just happened to be there. Well, it started when I was five years old and they couldn't get me. So now once he would figure out who I was, because it, because I, Knew him for a while there in Mexico City before he figured out that I was the kid from the five when I was five years old that he had tried to attack. So then it would become a little bit more of an obsession. You're that kid. We got to get this guy now. Then they would start trailing me. But before that, it was really just a thing of of uh, wild coincidences. Okay, why did I end up the kid who was? Lived on Minnehaha Street in Tampa, Florida, which there's a chapter on that in my book. And I got to write a whole book about that part of it because that's there's so many different attacks in there and different things that I would think would help people understand this wild serial killer thing. But why would I, is this guy end up chasing me right before they, this was right before they, the Anglins ended up in prison for that. Uh, bank robbery in Alabama, which, by the way, they were at my house talking to me about it before they went. And that's in my book. And uh, why would that same little boy end up at 16 or 17 years old walking down a street in Mexico City and just happen to walk by where these guys lived? Well, fate brought us together for some reason. There's a whole other story. We moved to another area called Six Mile Creek. And I have a whole... Uh, chapter on that, which I need to write two books about that because of all the different attacks and all of the friends of mine that he killed. And I mean, I even found saw places where he was burying bodies and they convinced me that they were burying old carpets and pipes and different things like that. But don't think I was the only fool. Okay. They buried, they killed a girl in her house, buried her in her backyard while her mom was out playing with the rest of the kids in the backyard 
and she was girlfriend to my best friend and he kept telling me that's her her name was sheila um sharon sharon martin that's sharon in that rolled up inside of this carpet and i thought it was a pipe and i said no nah. yes that look that's her hair and he wanted to go over there and stop them but you know they'd already killed her and everything and i go we can go if you want but we kind of backed down because uh, something they said that was really spooky they uh anyway that quirk of fate that i ended up running into them there was also kind of unbelievable so let's see those three places and then after that once they knew enough about me and where i lived in mexico city then they started following me they've been in my house at least twice that i can remember three times that i can remember uh try to uh try to kill my mom we got lucky my dad drove up and they he, uh john anglin he was the guy that usually did everything he got scared and ran and uh they came into my house one time i was asleep in bed and i woke up and there was john anglin bending over my bedside table about one foot from getting his hand on my gun and i got the gun first and he ran out the door one time I was in the living room playing guitar and I look up and there's John Anglin standing in the hallway with murder in his eyes. And I had a gun there and I go, I looked at the guns and he looked at the guns and I said, you uh, don't get any smart ideas because you don't know which one's loaded. And I do. And he started coming at me and I go, you know what? I'm going to show you which one's loaded barrel first. And I grabbed the rifle and M1 carbine from, I think, World War II or whatever. And I put it on him and he took off running. And if, I mean, you know, I'm going on and on and on here about these crazy guys. And if you want to hit some important points, you need to start asking questions because I can tell stories all day long. They attack me so many times. I, I can't believe that I never, you know, I, either I just wasn't getting a description or I didn't want to accept that it was the same people all the time. That to me, all my life, they were just strange events that happened to me. And who knows who that nut was. But once I started writing my book, I started looking at the pictures of the prison pictures of Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers. And Frank Morris didn't come in. He didn't tune in because when I knew him, he looked like, well, when I knew him when he was little, he looked like Frank Morris, but a young Frank Morris. And that was, I was too little to really remember. John Anglin has a very characteristic jaw. I remember that all my life. I remember the first time I saw it. But as I said, I never put it together that it was the same guy until I started writing my book and look at those pictures. I'm going, wait a minute. That's that's the guy. Wait a minute. There were more guys with him. There was two of them. You know, and I'd study and find things. And, and then all of a sudden, wait a minute, there was three. And then after a while, you know, the picture really started coming clear. And the identities uh, that were in the back of my memory started coming forward from looking at the pictures and I came and I concluded, wow, man, you know, Frank Morse and the Anglin brothers, they tried to kill me in Mexico City. They showed up at the wrestling. I was a professional wrestler. Later on in life, I went back there to wrestle and they showed up at the wrestling matches wearing Zodiac killer masks. That's why I know you might say, well, how did they get by with that? Well, uh, people in Mexico City kind of knew about the Zodiac killer, kind of didn't. But uh, they... Their uh, 
it's a big deal in Mexico City for the people, the fans, to buy wrestlers masks for their kids because almost most of the wrestlers are masked down there. <clears throat> and so you go in a wrestling match, there's all these kids wearing wrestling masks. So these guys sitting back there with masks on weren't really out of place. And they didn't uh, see the Zodiac Killer masks made out of a paper grocery bag. And they and Frank sewed uh, this black cloth on it, and then did all the other things to it. But uh, when they did this down there with me, they didn't put the black cloth on. They just wore the grocery bags, cut holes in them, wore the grocery bags on their head. And when I would look over at them, they would throw their arms up and start shaking them, like, you know, yeah, we're we're you're looking at us, but we're looking at you. That's and terrifying. They, Oh, yeah, this was could have been very terrifying, although I was so damn angry. All I wanted to do was go outside and kill them because they told me the, the promoter said that they had got the word off the street that these guys were planning on killing me that night. Another wrestler who ended up who was a female serial killer and was friends of theirs. And I have a video on this on YouTube. The Dama de Silencio, the Lady of Silence, she uh, told me. And they're going to kill you. And uh, and she didn't talk much. She had a nephew who I think it was, was a wrestler also. And he did all the talking. And he goes, yeah, she says they're going to kill you. And I look at her and she just looked back at me and made an X. You have to watch my video on that on YouTube. It really clears the whole thing up. She ended up getting uh, arrested for, got 790 years for killing, I don't know how many women. But they don't, she killed a lot more than what they thought. Same way with Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers. I estimate these guys killed probably 25,000 people at least. 25,000? At least. Because they would pretty much kill someone every day. And when this prostitution thing in Mexico City became so rampant that girls were coming from other countries and lining up in the streets to get picked up to try and make money. I mean, literally, you could drive for blocks and see these girls all lined up. And... uh they would go and sneak around and, you know, wait, get down to the end of the line and jerk one of them into the bushes and kill them. And they would say, and someone told me that they find sometimes five bodies with their throats cut and shot and everything the next day when the sun came out. They would just kill them and have their fun and leave them there. For anyone who's, who doesn't know, who is Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers? Yeah, Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers are the three guys who... They say unsuccessfully escaped from Alcatraz, but there's a lot of controversy about it. Well, there should be because they were very successful at it. The FBI protected them and their identity to keep everybody in America from knowing, to keep the world from knowing that their, the FBI's escape-proof prison wasn't escape-proof. And others have escaped from there and made it too, one of which went to New Orleans, got married, and live the rest of his life. I think he's still there. I'm not sure if he passed on or not. But his Clarence Anglin, like the guy's wife, they went up there. These three guys went up there. And Clarence got the wife pregnant. The wife had a son. And the son contacted me on uh, YouTube and Facebook. And we got to talking about it. And, and, and it, it, you know, it all fit because Frank Morris told me the story about them. Uh, going up to visit this girl that he liked and that she got pregnant and had a son. His name is Norm Tharp. Yeah, it's a complicated 
web of things that went on. And you asked me something earlier about how did, what was it you asked me about that the book, uh, timing, I'm not sure what it was, but, oh, the comic book thing. And somehow that, what, do you remember what you asked about that? Uh, I was just curious how he got a hold of that comic book in Mexico City. You could get comic books in Mexico City, but he may have brought it from America because they were for sale in America. And that's the part that I didn't finish telling you. And I'm glad we brought it back up. You know that Earl Van Best got blamed for being the Zodiac killer? Mm-hmm. Okay. Earl Van Best was a book salesman, a used book salesman who would travel to Mexico City and meet with Frank Morris. There's a chapter in my book about this because Frank wanted me to meet him because he said that he could help me bring things back and forth across the border that Frank could use to make money with. But I think what Frank wanted me to bring him was drugs. And I think that's what one of the things that Earl was bringing him was drugs. And then he'd get a few books so he'd have something to read. But in the process, he learned enough about this book thing from Van Best. He called him Van. <clears throat> he learned enough of, from him to uh, actually end up publishing his own book. It's called Ha Ha Ha. I have the book. The book says there's clues in there that will tell you where the D.B. Cooper money is buried. Well, well, I tell, it didn't say it was buried. He said it'll tell you where it's at. Well, I know where it's at, and it's buried. And he, there's no clues in the book. Frank told me there's no clues in the book, but there's clues to his identity all over the outside cover of the book. And I studied all of that, and I found everything that he told me about. But right now, I can't find my book. It's in a, I put it away somewhere. I can't remember where. Frank Morris. Frank Morris wrote Ha Ha Ha. Wrote the book called Ha Ha Ha. The, and listen to this. Uh, and I think I have a video on this. Do you Are you familiar with the note that Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers wrote to the warden of Alcatraz when they escaped? Yes. Yeah, I've watched almost okay. all of your videos. Okay, good. And, the, and, the, and you read the book too, right? I did. I just finished it a couple days oh. ago. Great. Okay, then uh, I tell you in there that uh, the note that Frank Morse and the Anglin brothers wrote to the warden of Alcatraz after they escaped, which was verified that it was their writing, said, ha, 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 we made it, and it had each one of their signatures on there. Now, ha, 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 we made it. And he wrote a book called Ha, Ha, Ha. Do you get it? Yes. Okay. Frank told me, he showed me the book. I wrote this book. And I, how, how does a guy like you write a book? Well, there it is. You're holding it in your hand. <clears throat> it says written by D.B. Cooper. And he'd already told me that he did that D.B. Cooper jump. He didn't say, you know, we, as you know, I put it in my book. He didn't say I was D.B. Cooper. He told me this great adventurous story that kept a 17-year-old boy that I was interested in jumping out of an airplane and that kind of thing. And you know, he talked around who he was and the fact that it was a hijacking. I never really figured that out until I started writing the book. But the point I was getting at with Earl Van Best, Van would come down in a van, which is why Frank called him Van. That's what he told me. And he would meet with him and who knows what they would do. But he wanted me to meet with him. He, there's a whole, you, you probably know because you read it. I have a whole chapter on it in my book. And if you, and if it is in the book, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, he called him bad see, and everything. See, see, I had to delete about five chapters from my book because when I got it done right, they told me it's too long. So sometimes I can't remember what's in there and what's not. Although I have the book in front of me, I can look it up. Look it up. Well, the book but says yeah, volume won. one on it, and you said you plan at least four more volumes to it, right? Exactly. Yeah, it would take at least four. I'm thinking five now because as time goes on, I keep remembering more and more things about these guys. Uh, that's for the future, you know. When it when the when I get out of debt and the book starts selling, and I can actually sit down and take some time to bring back all the memories and write all the stories. The, the next few books are just going to be really loaded with attacks and attacks and attacks. And I'm not sure how interesting that's going to be to people, you know, if they hadn't read the first book, because the attacks connect together all of the things that happened in the first book. And if they try to read the second one without the first one, it's just going to be a bunch of attacks. Right. And, and escapes. Earl Van Best was a interesting how he got, uh, you know, blame for this. And as you know, you already read it in my book. He was the guy that mailed all the letters for Frank to the press. <coughs> Excuse me. Frank would go kill, kill somebody, go back to Mexico city, write a letter about it. And Earl would meet him down there and he would give the, he tried to do this with me. He gave me, try to give me the, the let the, he, he, he tried to give me the Mary Pilker Christmas card and I wouldn't take it. That's why it was mailed so late. He, uh, I think, was four years after the murder before he mailed it. Handed it to me in a sandwich bag and told me, don't touch it. Just open the sandwich bag and dump it in a, a mailbox. And I told him, I said, I'm not going to dump anything in a mailbox if I don't know what it is. And you're telling me not to touch it. Well, that's weird, you know. And he, he got really angry. And uh, he... I, I had touched the card the day before, and I told him, is this the same card I touched yesterday that you told me not to touch? And he, nah, yeah, yeah, no, nah, nah, you know, and uh, that, that just, that complication just made me say, like, you know, I'm not going to do it. I almost became the person who mailed the Mary Pilker Christmas card with my fingers up prints on it. Speaking the of... The FBI... Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, if the FBI wants to prove... Well, they're not. I'm telling the truth. All they got to do is test for my DNA and my fingerprints on the Mary Pilker Christmas card because they're there. Frank claimed he cleaned them off, but I, I don't think so. I think he wanted to implicate me just like he implicated Van. You know, that was his thing was to implicate whoever would be friends with him and help him out. Did you tell the FBI about this, that they should be able to find your fingerprints on it? The I haven't. That's, that's a big timeline issue there. The police, when I was talking to the police about this whole thing, this is the problem that nothing ever got done because they could not get the FBI involved. The FBI would tell them, leave the case alone. The FBI knew that these guys were the Zodiac Killer, that they were murdering people, and they didn't care. You know you read that in my book. That's in my book. And there's in there is the statement that Frank told me where he said, the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover put us in the population control business. And I didn't understand what it meant. Population control? What are you talking about? Whoa, yeah, he was killing people. And the FBI were turning their backs on it. So you asked me if I told the FBI. I couldn't even get past the police departments to talk to the FBI. The city police and the highway patrolmen that I talked to about this said more than once, multiple times, because they kept attacking me, and I would go tell the patrolman about the attacks. 
And he said, there's just nothing I can do because we cannot get the FBI to help us. And I, why? And he goes, well, it's something political. And then a few years ago, right before, not right before, but it might have been 10 years before I started writing my book, an FBI agent came in here and put a bunch of pictures in front of me because I had a police officer friend here who kept, I would mention my friend in Mexico and he would say, man, I think you knew the Zodiac killer. And he, every time I would say something about the guy, he'd go, Zodiac killer, Zodiac killer. And he finally said, do you want me to send an FBI agent in here to talk to you about that? And I go, yeah, sure. And the guy comes in and he puts a, some pictures down of all these pictures of Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers and the uh, mostly pictures of, you know, the Zodiac killer drawings, the D.B. Cooper drawings, the whatever they had, and Frank Morris. And he said, uh, does any of these guys look like the guy you knew in Mexico City? And I picked out the picture of uh, of D.B. Cooper because, he, see, Frank had had facial surgery to look like D.B. Cooper. And he, uh, after he, <clears throat> his picture changed after that, you know. So he, if you look at the older drawings of the Zodiac Killer, they resemble old Frank. And over the years, over time, they start resembling more and more D.B. Cooper. Because he, I think he had the surgery over a period of years. What surgery did he have? Facial surgery to change the way he looked so that I'll give you his exact words. Because I said, what, you're talking about this facial surgery to this guy. And he didn't say he did it. He said... If a person wanted to hide their identity, all they'd have to do is take in their cheeks a little bit. Remember, that's in the book, I think. Take in their cheeks. They could do this. They could do that. And he was basically telling me what surgeries they did on his face. Trim down the nose, some different things. And I'm like, well, why would somebody want to do that? And he goes, well, you get on a damn airplane when somebody, when people are looking for you, you don't want them to know who you are. That's the way he would talk because he was always, you know, in anger mode. And then after you picked out the sketch of D.B. Cooper, what did the FBI have to say? He goes, well, we suspect that this guy over here, and he shows me a picture of Frank Morris, which is from long ago, is this guy. And I go, yeah, but they don't look anything alike. And he goes, yeah, that's part of the problem. Do you recognize any of these others? And I go, yeah, they look kind of like him, but not as much as this guy does. And uh, so, so the sketches from these earlier murders, I guess, were made before he did the D.B. Cooper jump in the 60s, late 60s. And then at the end of the late 60s, he changed his identity through facial surgery so that he could do the D.B. Cooper thing, and he was hiding out in Mexico City. One time, you may remember, one time I went to his house and I called him Cooper because I was just thought, he kept telling me about the D.B. Cooper jump, so I, and he goes, don't ever call me that. I'm like, why? You just said that it wasn't you, blah, 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 whatever. But you know, my point is, you asked about, had I ever told the FBI? Well, that's the extent of it there. The FBI never looked into it again, but they told me, you need to watch out. You know, if this guy's still alive, he's going to be looking for you. And we suspect, you know, I mean, if he's a serial killer and, and then um, he told me this will probably never be solved. And the best thing you could do is write a book about it. Every police officer I knew told me write a book about it. So that's why I started writing the book finally after this late in age. And when you were talking to him back then, you didn't even know who it was. Exactly. I still didn't. I didn't know 
who it was. I didn't put the pieces to the puzzle together until I started writing the book because every day I was on the internet. It started The internet thing started out casual. And this is unfortunate because when I try to tell law enforcement about it, oh yeah, you got it off the internet. There's a lot of nuts cases out there that go to the police and say, I know who the Zodiac killer was. I figured it out from looking at the internet. That's how smart I am. I figured it out. Well, you don't figure this out, okay? I figured it out because it was already in my head. I just didn't understand it because Frank Morris, being a genius, made it so complicated that I couldn't put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And interestingly enough, I put them together after he's already gone. But anyway, I it was mostly timeline issues. I remember the very first thing I looked up was this timeline issue I told you about D.B. Cooper because... You know, it's he did the jump in a certain year, but he was telling me about it the year before. How can that be? You know, but I know he was always saying things about, remember, you're going to have a timeline issue. Frank would say this. Remember, you're going to have a timeline issue with this. I was a kid. I was like, what's the time timeline issue? What's that? Just don't worry about it. Just remember that you're going to have a timeline issue with this. And one of the things he said that about was that jump. He goes, you're going to get it all confused when it comes time for you to figure it out if you ever do. And I'm. Like, what is he talking about, you know? But being a profound statement like that, I guess it just stayed in my mind. So I'm looking up a timeline issue, and I'm finding different things. And I'm starting to get some timelines together to write my book about D.B. Cooper. And I'm getting the chapters, you know, I'm probably on chapter two or three. But this Zodiac thing keeps popping up that he talked about. And I should be, he was always telling me, you need to be careful. I don't want you out on the streets by yourself. You're going to get yourself killed. Somebody's going to walk up behind you and shoot you in the back. People around here don't care and this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, I'm not scared. You know, I was a wrestler in school. and I mean, that's stupid. You, you, you'd be scared if somebody can walk up behind you and shoot you. But So there'd be times anyway. where he was looking out for you and times where he was trying to kill you. Exactly. And me not knowing that this was the same person because he had, he told me himself that he had a split personality. And I would bond with the one personality, which was a little bit fatherly with me during the day. And then this other personality I never recognized was the same person. I usually wouldn't see him when I, where they were trying to catch me. It would be the Anglin, one of the Anglin brothers that I would see, usually John. And John, if you didn't get in the right position where you could see that chin of his, he had a very plain looking face. All three of them did, which is all part of the reason why they never got caught. And they somewhat resembled each other, which confused things even more when you start trying to identify someone. And to get back to the D.B. Cooper thing for a second. So he talked to you about uh, the comic book, but not necessarily about the plan for it. Did you see it in on TV or in the news? I know in the book you said you didn't pay much attention to the news because you were high school age or college age, but... Did you see that no, story? I was, I was, I was, when the news of that kind of thing was coming out, yeah, I was, uh, you know, first, second year in college, in high school. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I had my shows I liked to watch. And when the news came on, I would go outside because we always had a baseball game going around that time. And, or it was dark. I, I forget. Because I remember, anyway, that's not, that's not relevant. What was your, the, what was your question? You want to oh, know? Well, my, my question was, Oh, what came out on the news? Yeah, hijacking. I, I wasn't even sure what the word meant. Uh, you know, an air, a guy jumps out of the the uh, an airplane with a sack of money. And that's about the only thing that I really remember about it. And of course, they said he called himself D.B. Cooper, but I'm not going to remember a name like that, that young and everything and not really focusing on the news. 
But at that time, yeah, was, uh, one... you didn't make the connection between your that guy in Mexico City and the guy who hijacked that plane. Yeah, at 16 years old, which was probably around 1970, he showed me the book and said that I'm thinking about doing some stuff like this. And I'm thinking that he's planning on becoming a paratrooper. And maybe he's interested in taking me to go see what that's all about. Because I told him I was interested in that. And he asked me if I, did, if I could jump out of an airplane. And I told him I could, but I wouldn't. Or I would if whatever, I don't know. But, uh, you know, he's playing around with me. And I, I, I don't know. You know, you're thinking the guy's kind of fatherly. But at the same time, you don't know about him. <clears throat> but what he, he eventually he you know he didn't tell me enough of the story from that when it popped up on tv i, I think i might have told my mom or my sister wow that sounds like that story that guy told me in mexico city come to think of it that, that did happen right but you I didn't pay much more attention to it than that at the time yeah and that was the end of it right there it just sounds like him and my mom and my sisters didn't pay any attention they weren't paying any attention to the news either Probably why I didn't pay that much attention. I was watching a few of your YouTube videos on this last night to prepare, and one of them, you were going over the D.B. Cooper letter to uh, Reno, um, I believe the, the Reno newspaper, and there's some symbols in the letters on the envelope. And you were able to link that to the Zodiac symbols. Oh, yeah, there's a lot. And I've linked so much more. I could go back and do all every one of those letters over again and show you twice as many new links that I overlooked from before. And when he told me, and, and again, the links that I'm showing you on there are things that he showed me in Mexico City. He would put those letters in front of me and explain to me in a way where he figured I knew just enough, but not enough to understand. You know, like, see this letter right here, that B that's a number 13, and if you turn it over, it's an M with a line under it. That M with a line under it, Morris, and I'm very important. They had to underline my name, okay? That kind of egotistical, uh, uh, what do you call, serial killer, psychopathic type personality really comes out in that M. That, and the number 13, which is M is the 13th letter in the alphabet, so everything ties together. But that's one of the characteristics. There's a whole lot more. He told me, he showed me that. He said, this, uh, you see that? What does it look like now? He turned it over. What does it look like now? It looks like an M with a line under. Yeah, yeah, that's important, okay? And then he would go on to something else. What does it look like this? And he goes, well, it looks like a B. And he goes, yeah, does it look like anything else? Yeah, it looks like number 13. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's important. And I go, well, is it a B or a 13? And he goes, well, it could be both. Okay, all right. You know, in all my life, never knew what all that conversation was about until I really started staring at these cards when I was writing my book and remembering what he said and like all the pieces of the puzzle start falling together again. Yeah, you didn't know at the time and, you'd have to be decoding this. Yeah, yeah. But I knew, you know, I mean, I have the advantage on everybody else. I'm not just somebody who went to the Internet and said, voila, I found the answer. I mean, the guy that drew the thing told me what's in it. The most characteristic one that really blew me away when I remembered it was the one where I think my name is on, uh, not my name, but uh, he writes the whole letter in block letters. And there's a word with a D in the front of it. And the D is written exactly the way I drew, wrote D in my name back then. 
why would that one letter on that whole letter that he wrote that's all in block letters, why would that only that one letter be written in, in a different handwriting than a block letter? Do you think it's an intentional wink just to you? I know it is because he told me it was. He put this damn thing in front of me. He says, you see that? And I go, yeah. And he goes, you see any difference or something like that? I go, yeah, it's, you know, everything else is in block letters. And he goes, what about this? And I go, because he had to keep bringing my attention back to it. I wasn't getting it. And I go, well, no, that's kind of a block letter, but kind of not. He goes, no, it's not. It's not a block letter. And I go, I go, well, so what is it? And he goes, that's your D in your name. Because remember last year when you were here, I had you write your name down. I copied that right off of your name the way you wrote it. <coughs> so I know it's a link to me. And the police, when I would go back to Tampa, I would tell them all these stories and tell me, they would tell me, stay away from this guy. He's going to link you up to something that's going to get you in trouble. And I had to walk by his house to get to the restaurant to eat every day. So I kept running into him. When did he tell you about the hijacking after the fact? Well, yeah, I'm going to say, and you, that's in my book, I think, because I have to go study the timeline again to tell you exactly when it was. But if I remember right, he did that November of 72, didn't he? The hijacking was November 71. 71, you sure? Yep. Okay. Then I, yeah, yeah, that fits because I graduated from high school in 71. I saw him in the summer of 71 and he talked about the D.B. Cooper thing then. <clears throat> he jumped in November. So it was the next year in the summer I went down there again on vacation. Uh, the previous two summers I'd been there studying Spanish. The, I'd have graduated already and the third year was just habit and vacation and that's when I went to see him and he told me well I did that jump I told you about and I go I didn't even hardly remember it you know and he started explaining I okay so what's it like jumping out of an airplane and we went talking about things like that and he told me about crashing into the trees and about them finding buried money and why the money was burned and all that that's all in my book so I'm going to say that it, it, it was in November 72 they did the jump and it would have been around June, July, August, summer of 73 when he told me about it. No, no. You said he jumped in 71, so it would have been summer of 72 when he told me about it, which was the summer before I joined the Air Force. In November, in October of 72, I joined the Air Force. And in that summer, he followed me back to Tampa and was trying to kill me there at my place of business and ended up kidnapping a lady that worked there. I think that's in my book, too. And they killed her and buried her. And she's still buried behind that that Dairy Queen. I did a video on it. But, you know, I need they have this new LIDAR now that they can fly a drone over and find bodies that are buried out there. I need to get them to do some finding because I know where there's a lot of bodies buried. But you know what Frank said about it? He said, uh, you ever want to bury something that, you know, he didn't tell me it was bodies, but you want to bury something that aren't, people aren't going to find it. You bury it somewhere where they're going to build a building. And I go, why do you say that? And he goes, well, unless whatever you buried is worth a lot of money, if it's worth a lot of money, they're not going to tell anybody because they're going to keep it. And if it's not worth a lot of money, they're going to hide it because they don't want the police to come out there and say, hey, what is this? What happened? Because you don't want to, they don't want, uh, the subcontractors do not want to hold up the contractors because they've already exchanged lots of money on building this building. So they're just going to bury it and build the building. Have you told the police where these bodies are? 
No, because that is another thing that I've just figured out recently since writing the book. And I haven't had any contact with law enforcement since then, except when I went up there to uh, to Lake Tahoe and found Donna Lass's grave. I tried to talk to law enforcement there, but they didn't want to listen. <clears throat> they just thought I was another computer nut who thinks he figured everything out. And I haven't come up with a way to talk to police about these buried bodies. Most of them are in Tampa, Florida, and I'm in Texas. So I have to do it when I'm home on vacation. I haven't been in a while, but I have friends who were, you know, retired policemen and tried to get them to help me. But they're, I mean, I really think these guys knew because one of them was a lieutenant. I think he knew back then what was going on with me and the, and the, uh, and these three guys and the FBI had already told him to stay out of it. So he's still trying to stay out of it. The, this ever coming to a head, you know, may be difficult. It may just be my story because, you know, if I shook hands with this girl before they killed her, she's going to have my DNA in her hand. Right. You know, and I know I shook the girl's hand, the one girl, because she was my best friend's girlfriend, but I don't remember if it was the same day. It could have been another day. You know, and you hand stuff back and forth to each other. I don't know. So, uh, you know, I don't know when I'll be able to find someone in law enforcement that could say that's got to be right. The officer that I dealt with in Tampa back in the 60s, the early 70s, uh, you know, I searched and searched for this guy. First, He's a real good guy, too. I searched for him for so long. Really embarrasses me because I find out he was a member of the same lodge that me and my uncle and my father were members of, and I didn't even know it. He ended up being the grand master or whatever of the Shriners there. And, and then I, I, you know, I couldn't find him. I couldn't find him. And I finally, I don't know, I guess I just decided to look in obituaries just in case, you know, cause I know he's getting up there in age and he died two years ago. This is a guy who could have verified all of my links and everything because he's the guy that I told the story to when I came back. Uh, he's the guy that I he had me draw the gun sight that Frank Frank drew one of his gun sights for me. He spent a lot of time on it. He copied a a hood ornament on a Mercedes Benz. He told me take this back and give it to your friend. The officer's name was was W D Brown. Take this back and give it to your friend Brown. He'll know what it's about. And I go, well, why do you want me to do that? Just take it and give it to him. He'll, he'll know. He'll tell you whatever he wants to tell you. Maybe you'll figure some of this out because you're not going to figure it out by yourself. And uh, the Border Patrol took it away from me on the way back, the Mexican Border Patrol. They said, this guy, that you know this guy? <clears throat> and I go, yeah. And he goes, wait right here. I got scared. I'm like, damn, I'm in trouble because I just because I know this guy. I was a kid, you know. So they were aware of him, too. Yeah. But when they came back, they said, you need to forget about this and stay away from this guy because this guy's a murderer. And the thing, I said, well, why don't you do something about it? And he goes, ah, Mexico City is full of murderers. People escape from countries all over the world and come to Mexico City, and they keep murdering people because there's so many people in Mexico City, it's easy to get a victim. And uh, he said, you need to forget about this. And he threw it in the trash can. Well, in looking back on it, what he did was he took it out of the trash can and he sold it to somebody <laughs> as having been drawn by the actual Zodiac killer. 
And if it didn't get destroyed, it's still out there somewhere. But that would have been one of my links to kind of prove the thing. But uh, when I came back, I told W.D. Brown about that. And he told me, I, I told him they took it away from me. He said, well, draw it. And I drew it. What the, he drew and he goes, this is it. This is a Zodiac symbol. That's the symbol he uses. Man, I can't believe you're alive. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but then... That since that didn't work, the next year I came down and he told me to. I told him I had some drawings I made. He said, "Bring them. I want to see them." And he took one of them. He gave it back to me the next day. I didn't sign it back then. I didn't sign my drawing. He put a Zodiac killer signature on the uh, drawing at the bottom of the drawing, and he said, "Take that back and show it to him." And I did. I gave that to W. D. Brown. He showed it to the FBI. The FBI gave it back to him and told me, told him to tell me that. I was friends with a Zodiac killer that I need to stay away from because he likes killing teenagers and that that was one of his signatures. And I'm like, they don't need it for evidence. And he said, no, because some kind of political thing, they're not going to do anything about it. Oh, I know what it was back then. They knew that since he was in Mexico City, they couldn't do anything about it because of they, it was a no, act extra, no extradition policy uh, that America had with Mexico. Then we couldn't go down there and get, um, you know, criminals who are going to be, who might face a death penalty because there's no death penalty in Mexico. Why was the FBI protecting them? Because J. Edgar Hoover, who was one of the biggest egos in this country, did not want the world to know that his escape-proof prison wasn't escape-proof. And you may not understand that, but if you'd grown up when I did, you would because they were put, they would put it on the, uh, on the commercials between the news, things like, uh, they would talk about Al Capone, you know, Al Capone, a dirty criminal. He hasn't had a bath in 10, he hasn't bathed himself in 10 years. That was the headlines in the papers and everything. But the reason he hadn't, because he had all these women do it for him. <laughs> he paid them for it. You know, I mean, this guy really lived lush and lavish. But anyway, the, but then they would say, but he's now in Alcatraz. You don't want to end up in Alcatraz. They would, Use this propaganda to make little kids say, gee, I want to be a good kid. I don't want to get in trouble because I don't want to end up in Alcatraz like Al Capone, who never took a bath for 10 years. And, uh, you know, when you're a little kid, you're you got to remember, I was about five at the time, five or six. And when this was coming out on TV, you, you know, your parents are always telling you, you got to take a bath or you're a dirty little boy and you don't want to be a dirty little boy. So these things you remember, you know, and they were putting that on the uh they would actually have uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the FBI, for those who don't know, and also built Alcatraz for people like um, Al Capone, uh, John Dillinger, and, uh, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, or whoever he could, Ma Barker, not Bonnie and Clyde, but Ma Barker and the Barker gang, and anyway, the Birdman of Alcatraz, and Frank was really proud of having been in the the same place where all these guys were at, but he didn't tell me that he'd been in that place. It, it, I, that's another story in itself, and I'm running out of time. I, I'm going to have to start seeing patients in a few minutes. But uh, J. Edgar, J. Edgar Hoover, with his big ego, did not want to admit that these guys had escaped from Alcatraz. They say that Alcatraz Prison never had a successful escape, and according to Mac Frank Morris, there were at least five people who got out of there and made it. And I know there were at least four because he was three of them and Norm Tharp's dad made it. And he's probably still over there in Louisiana. Yeah, I've, I've heard the same logic applied to the D.B. Cooper case. Why it's not solved is the FBI 
would be too embarrassed to admit why they could uh-huh. have solved. The FBI, they only have a few seconds, so I want to tell you one thing that's really important that Frank really, really wanted to, to, to burn this into my memory. Just remember that the plane flew west. Now, the FBI said that whatever direction they said it flew, it wasn't west. And Frank knew that they were telling people that it didn't fly west. And he said, just remember that because west along the, the, uh, that river, I forgot the river, up to Lake Merwin is where he jumped out at. And he, and I told him, how do you know the plane flew west? And he said, because I made them fly west. <clears throat> and the FBI to this day says that the plane did not fly west, never flew west. But if you follow the trajectory that they say it took and you get to the point of where that river is at, gee, I can't remember the name of the river. Lewis River. Lewis River. Yeah. When you get to the Lewis River, you turn west, then it takes you right to around Ariel, Washington, where he jumped. And he talks about the jump in the in the book, Ha Ha Ha. But I think it's all a lie because I haven't read to that part yet because I can't find my book. But I was told that he claimed he jumped near Reno. I don't think Ariel is is near Reno. No, not at all. Or or, or even Seattle. Maybe maybe the guy told me it was Seattle. I don't know. But but that's where he jumped around Ariel. And there was a <clears throat> the guy that taught him how to jump was flying around in a small plane down there to help locate him. And the Anglin brothers were sitting down there in a car waiting for him. He didn't tell me that, but I put the pieces to that puzzle together based on what data is out there on this jump and different things and everything just has to make sense. And there was a little 12 or 13 year old girl body, girl's body that was found in a barn just a few miles from where he jumped and that they thought uh, was one of the, was him. And when they did the autopsies, now this is a little girl who was murdered by a serial killer about two or three weeks before the jump. Well, that all fits because this is how this is what these guys did. That was their daily sex drive. They were necrophiliacs. They mur- they were there scoping the area two or three weeks before the uh, jump, and they found a little girl out there walking home from school, probably, and took her there and murdered her and left her body in there. So that all fits. The Tina Barr thing. Tina Mucklow lives 10 miles from Tina Barr. Um, Tina Mucklow, in one of your YouTube videos, you talked about how she was in on it with him. Yeah, according to him, he said that one of the stewardesses was in on it with him. And then he threw a bunch of confusion at me because he didn't want me to figure out which one it was. Because I asked him, he'd already told me her name. And he said, no, but it wasn't her. It was the other one. And he, he, you know, but anyway, she sat down beside of me. So... When you go look on the internet, I think it was Tina Mucklow that sat down beside of him. So that would have to, that would all fit. She, uh, and it also makes sense because, I don't know if you know it or not, but Tina Mucklow gave one statement to the police and would never talk to anyone again about it. Why would that be? It seems suspicious. Yeah. <clears throat> and she, according to... Frank, and I believe I found it somewhere else, she had a brother or a cousin who worked for the FBI. I don't know if he was a clerk or an actual agent, but he was supposed to have been in on it too. He helped them uh, make sure that uh, Ed Cossey got picked for uh, the, well, 
the the guy that would would pack the shoots because him and Frank were friends and had already pre-planned this thing. Ed Cossey got killed in his house back in 2013, I believe it was. He was beat to death in his in his uh, in his garage with a blunt object. And they said it didn't have anything to do with the DB Cooper jump. That's what the FBI said, but they're lying. I'm pretty sure they know that. Frank and the Anglers did it because that's how they killed the people. A lot of the people they killed was cracking their skulls. He even drew pictures of that on the his Halloween card. And so Earl Cossey was in on it and Frank Morris ended up murdering him? Ed Cossey and, uh, and yes, Ed Cossey packed the shoots. I think that everybody knew that. And I wanna, I'm saying Ed. I'm sure his name's Ed because I always get Ed Cossey and Earl Van Best mixed up, okay? <clears throat> the names. Ed was uh, the the guy that that packed the shoots, and I think what it was was that because you know think places were a lot smaller back then, and uh, the he was the guy that would pack shoots in in a case like that for the FBI. So so they already knew Frank already knew that the guy was going to be the one to do it. Frank took. A couple of jump lessons, and I wish I could remember the gentleman's name that gave him the jump lessons. He was a guy who had a little bit of a record of being criminal, too. And there was a video on YouTube about him for a while, and they accused him of being the Zodiac Killer. And he pulls up in an airplane and sticks his head out and goes, I'm not the Zodiac Killer. And he laughs. Or no, no, not Zodiac Killer, D.B. Cooper. I'm not Z.B. Cooper. And he laughed. But you can see when he's laughing, he's looking out into space because he was thinking about Frank Morris. I think his name's Washington. I'm not sure. I can't remember. I've looked him up so many times and I keep forgetting his name. I write it down somewhere and I forget again. But he's the guy that taught Frank how to jump. And Frank said that he only went up a few times and that this guy was in on it too. He didn't say he was in on the hijacking. He said, well, the guy's, you know, was, uh, you know, I might have went up for a couple of jumps. I mean, I had a friend there that, you know, and he kind of helped me with this thing. And I go, well, what thing? He goes, oh, well, nothing, you know. So that, you know, that kind of thing stuck in my head and I start putting it together and he's telling me that this guy helped him do that, that jump. And then I find somewhere on the internet that there was a small plane flying around in the rain that night. Why would you fly a plane at night in the rain? Number one, you have to be a damn good pilot, which this guy was because he was a pilot and a, a jump instructor. So he wasn't afraid because he probably had a shoot on at the time. And, uh, you know, if he had a problem, he could get out. But why would you be out there flying? And, of course, nobody's ever looked in to prove him whether or not he was flying that night. I'm sure he didn't fly, fail, fly, file a flight plan. But anyway, all these people, I think, were planning on profit from the money that Frank got. And I think Frank had the idea that if he did this right, they wouldn't have time to mark the bills. Or he picked the night because it was Thanksgiving Eve, he, everybody would be at home with their family or whatever, and there would be no one there to mark the bills. And that's why they stalled him on the tarmac so they could mark the bills. And he kept trying to hurry him up, hurry him up, hurry him up. And I think by the time he got the money, he already knew it was marked. What did he do so with the money? Long. He took the money with him. He jumped out of the airplane. The... The... Uh, <clears throat> mentioned to me about the $5,000 that got burned and buried, which now they want to say it wasn't burned. It's 
natural rot. That really makes me mad. 45 years, the, bur bur the, the money was burned. Now, all of a sudden, it's rotten. Why would that change? Just people throw their own curveballs in the story, you know, because they can't figure out why it really was burned. And I'll tell you what Frank told me, and I think it's in my book. You probably already read it. He said, uh, he said something about some money that was burned and that, that was he buried down there. And I'm like, what'd you bury it for? Well, you just bury it. You know, what are you going to do? It's burned. I, I don't know. Change the subject type thing. Keep get my mind off of it. And then at some other date, we probably were talking about it again. And he said, he said uh, he was talking about how cold it was. And he said it was pretty stupid of him to jump out of an airplane when it was freezing outside and raining. And all he had on was a jacket and a pair of loafers. And I never forget him saying that once I started reading about him and going, this guy jumped out with a jacket and a pair of loafers. And I'm like, damn, that had to be my, that guy I know in Mexico City because he told me that. And uh, he, there are so many things I can tell you about this. She's, uh, let me get answer that question before I go on to the next one. What was it that you asked me? Well, let me, uh, let me ask you a different question. Dave, sure. what, what do you think the reaction has been to your story in the Zodiac and D.B. Cooper communities? Uh, they are the most combative and resistant because they all, <clears throat> all of the communities have their idea of who did what and who was where. And no one uh, wants to give it up. These same people who looked at the Internet and decided, I know the answer. They don't want you to tell them that they're wrong. So when they start hearing the truth, they go nuts. One girl got on, uh, on uh, there's a thread, it's still on there. If you type in uh, something about D.B. Cooper, Frank Morris, mm -hmm. uh, it'll come up where she, uh, I, they say it's a girl, I don't know. The name is Tahoe 27. And this person has, a, I think, the Zodiac Killer site belong to them. And I went on there to tell them about it. You know, it's like, wow, I'm just writing this book and I just figured out that, you know, who this guy was and everything. And they just started, I swear to God, I thought I was in a, in a foxhole in Vietnam and the, and the, I was getting overrun by Viet Cong. I was getting fired at from every angle. And I finally got mad and, you know, got, got off the, you know, drop dead. Forget it. I just thought you guys might want to know the truth. You know, there's no way that this and no way that that, oh man. But anyway, this person goes on and puts a thread on the internet, like I said, if you type in Frank Moore Zodiac, you'll get that Tahoe 27's thread where they say, there's no way that Frank Morris could be the Zodiac killer because number one, his skin was too dark. Number two, he was too tall to fit the description. I mean, Frank Morris was too short to fit the description of D.B. Cooper and Frank Morris's skin was too light. Now, I did a video on that. You've probably seen it. Yep. Where, yeah, where I tell you about Tahoe 27. Because yeah, the, I think it's interesting that you respond to trolls personally mm -hmm. on the YouTube videos. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have to. And then that one especially because that was one of the first trolls that ever attacked me when I first started writing the book. And I didn't know what to say because I didn't have enough information to understand what was really going on. I was just starting to figure it out. So they're attacking me from and, – and it wasn't just Tahoe 27. There was half a dozen people on that site that were just firing away at me with things that I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it was good because over the years studying things and remembering things that Frank told me, I can't, and being the personality that I am, I had to come up with an answer to every one of those questions. 
And if it didn't fit, that was going to be the end of my story. Well, guess what? I got all the answers and they all fit. So it's actually good that that happened. But I still don't like the fact that that thread's out there. So I make a story about it to tell the truth. The, the Frank Morris was half Mexican, which Mexican people typically have dark skin. Frank, all he had to do was get out in the sun and he'd get really dark. Hispanic people stay dark for a long time. In general, most of them, but not all of them, because some people, you know, like Guadalajara, there's blonde hair, blue eyed people in Guadalajara that probably can't even get out of the sun. But <clears throat> Frank wasn't one of those. And <clears throat> they, he was too tall. And I tell you about Frank saying that he threw some things out of the airplane. One of them was the bomb. He told me he threw it down the toilet. He flushed it down the toilet. And somewhere in there, he said he threw it in the lake. But I didn't hear exactly what he said because he was turning. He would turn away from you and say something, hoping you didn't hear him. And he, he threw the bomb in the lake. That's why they've never found it because they've never searched in Lake, lake Merwin. Do you and think the he, bomb was real? Did he say anything about that? I don't think so, but I think he made it look real. He he may have said something to me about that. Honestly, do not remember, and I haven't been able to remember whether or not it was real. But I'll be honest with you, knowing Frank, I don't think he'll ever tell anybody whether or not it was real. He wants them to think it was, just in case he has to do it again. You know, and he did. And he had his Zodiac killer bomb threats. He didn't want him to anybody to think that those weren't real. And then on your YouTube videos, you made a, a promise that you would give someone fifty thousand dollars if they could disprove your story. I'm up to 200000 on that right now. 200000 $200,000 I will give you tomorrow if you can prove that anything I'm telling you is not true. And people say, how can you do that if you're broke? I'm not broke. I'm deep in debt. <clears throat> but guess what? You can't prove something that happened to me didn't happen, okay? So I ain't worried about having to come up with the money. You want me to be honest with you? Why do you think this story isn't getting the attention that it obviously deserves just not hitting the right people all it would really take is someone like dr phil who's reputable to let me tell my story on there and say you know what this guy's telling the truth from there it would take off but i can't get the exposure because i can't get to the right places in front of the right people number one and number two you know, this this case is so old. There's a lot of people nowadays that aren't even interested. They don't care. <clears throat> some people who were brought up during some of the time when some of these things happen are a little bit interested in it. It's like, it's almost, what I'm concerned about is, it's like if I told you, look, my grandfather knew uh, Jack the Ripper and he knew who he was, and I start telling the story, people are like, yeah, so what? I don't want to hear that. You know what I mean? It's so old and it's not that interesting, but... Not that interesting. I mean, we're talking about the escape from Alcatraz, Zodiac, yeah. D.B. Cooper. The uh, Texarkana Moonlight murder. The uh, Black Dahlia murder. There was a... I just... The latest one that I've stumbled across was a black gentleman named... Oh, man, this is so terrible when I figured this out. I feel so sorry for this guy, black shoe salesman, not shoe salesman, but shoe repairman who had a little shoe shop in someplace in Louisiana where he repaired shoes. And Frank and the Anglers hung around Louisiana a lot. They robbed a lot of banks there, including tried to rob one that I was guarding one time when I was a, a police officer. But uh, I mean, a, an armed security officer. But anyway, that's another story. 
Uh, but he was there's also a JFK connection, and then possibly sure. John Benet Ramsey also. He killed John Benet Ramsey, uh, Colonel Hogan, uh, Bob Crane. They did that murder, and and I you know I would go to Mexico and the summers to visit, and he would tell me about it. But in a way, it would be like, did you hear what happened to Colonel Hogan? No, I didn't hear. Well, somebody killed him. I'm like, yeah, you know, somebody. I think he's talking about the show that somebody killed him on the show. I, I had heard that there that he'd been murdered, and he goes, "Well, yeah, you know, they uh, they gave they gave the guy a necklace and a few other things too. He deserved it because he had was doing all those things with those women. He hated uh, men and women, you know, ha having any kind of affectionate relationship with each other. And I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? He, and he said, we." Uh, and we left something there for you, too. And I go, we? No, no, I mean, they. They, they left. Well, if we were going to do something like this, we would leave something there for you. You know, he talked around and get me all confused. But they, uh, you know, it's hard to talk about because they left some things there that, that now mean something to me and didn't back then. But... I don't want. I don't want to talk about it. I don't think in a public forum. Someday we'll talk about it in private. Yeah, but I John Benet Ramsey. They. They. I mean, that whole thing fits. They got. They went in through a window in the basement. The Anglo Frank and the Anglo would not force a door open or break into any place because Frank knew that if you do a break in, two things: number one, you leave evidence, and number two, and I. And this is another thing that I never would have thought of until after studying this, like why did they do this and why did they do certain things to me when there was times they could have come through that door because the door was nothing. All I had to do was push it, but they wouldn't because they knew that if you break in, number one, you leave evidence, and number two, it is now a forced entry, and if a person is missing, it's an abduction, which they're going to assume felony murder. If, you get, if the person opens the door and you get in, you could beat the person up in their house, take them away with you, murder them and everything. And when the police get there, they're going to say, you know, it's a missing persons, which is just like a runaway. Right. So it's not, it's not even going to go over to the FBI. And that's how they kept from getting caught. One of the ways that I figured out over the years studying and studying how they worked and everything, because there was a couple of times they could have got me one. It was just a screened in porch. And they, I was like, there's, you know, it's just a little lock on the port. All they got to do is jerk the door. The lock's going to rip off the screen, screen door, and they wouldn't touch it. Come on, let's go. Frank, uh, John tells Frank, no, nah, he locked the door. He goes, come on, let's go. And they leave. That's interesting. Yeah, and you wonder why. Why wouldn't they just tear the door off, you know? But they knew that all of those things and how the police would react to it. This would keep them from getting investigated for a murder even though they had been inside the house with me and I pulled a gun on him to get him out. And did he tell you where he buried the hijacking money or is that something you figured out from clues? Let, yeah, let me just answer the, every question you want to ask me about that's going to start out with, did he tell you? The answer is in clues. <laughs> okay, always. He <laughs> never told me anything directly because he didn't want me to figure any of this out. He wanted it to be in my head, I think, so that I could tell the story later on in life. And he told me that one time, something about you can tell the story later on if you live long enough. 
So how did <coughs> you figure did... out where the money was or where well, the money is? One of the things that he told me was, because I kept asking him about it, the police in Tampa wanted to know, and I kept asking him, I'm not going to tell you. I've already told you where it's at. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I told you that. Remember that, uh, the Pines card? I don't remember how he called it. Remember that treasure map I showed you? He called it the Pines card. He told me it was a treasure map. He never called it the Pines card to me. He just called it a treasure map, showed it to me, showed me some different pictures on there. And when he would show me a picture, he'd say, see that? He would not say, see that? That's the body of Donna Lass lay in there, the way we buried her. He would say, what do you see there? And I go, I don't know. looks like a girl in there. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. What do you see over here? And he showed me everything on that card. And that's the things that I put in my videos on YouTube that I remembered from what he said. Because once I started looking at that card on the Internet, remembering that I saw the original one, I'm going or a copy. I think he made a copy of every one of these things. The police, he would send one to the police and then he'd have one for himself. And I would look at this thing and, and, and I would find all these things on here that he had asked me about. What did he mean when he said, what's that? What's that? And little by little, it would start coming back to me. And based on the things that I had studied, all the pieces of the puzzle would start fitting together, literally. literally. So, yeah, he didn't, you know, uh, we, I showed you that treasure map. Back to where's the D.B. Cooper money. Remember that treasure map? I showed, well, I told you there was a treasure up there. Are you talking about that's the money from that where you jumped out of that airplane? And he goes, he would change the subject like, no, it's not got nothing, nothing to do with that. Or like, try to get, you know, get me lost. And I'd be like, man, you're so damn mysterious. He goes, yeah, people say that. And, uh, but they, he booby-trapped the money, didn't he? Possibly. It may be booby-trapped. Well, what he told me was that if you go, he said, let me back up a little. He, he wanted me, and I think part of the reason he told me where that money was about the money, was he wanted me to go up there and dig the money up for him. They were going to uh, try and spend it on something. No, no, wait, they didn't want the money. He was going to tell me how to go to the police, turn in the money, so that they the police could dig it up, and uh, they and I could get the reward for it and bring the reward to him. Because he said, there's a there's some people that will give you money. They're, they're offering $10,000 if you go up there and find that that treasure that we buried. And he wouldn't tell me what the treasure was, okay? You find that treasure, they'll they'll give you $10,000. I go, well, what, do you, what am I going to do with $10,000? Bring it to me. <laughs> Would you have done that? You know, at the time, I thought about it. I thought, you know, then I started thinking, being I was like 17 at the time or 18, the thought of going to another state to follow a treasure map that didn't have enough clues on it for me to figure out what it was all about and then get the police involved and bring, and then I got to the point where I said, and bring the money back to someone who says he buried it there. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm not getting involved in this. Have you thought about going and, and finding it? I, I already did. I have a video on that in, in, uh, on YouTube uh, about Donna Lass's grave because it's buried there where she's at. And that's your answers to another question that you told me. He said, I said, where is it, where is it at? And he said, I'm not going to tell you. He goes, it's here and there. And he pointed like to the ground here and there and here and there. We put it around different places. And I go, well, what would you do that for? And he goes, well, because we're going to need it later on. 
what are you going to do with it? I forget how he told it to me, but the slaves in hell thing, when you die and go to hell, you're going to need money to pay off people in hell. That psychopathic wacko, you know, he believed that he was going to need money for that. And it wouldn't matter that the bills were marked in hell. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Some of the money's there and some of it's in Florida. What do you think about other people claiming they know who D.B. Cooper was and pitching their own suspect? Well, uh, to people who are curious about that, I, I will tell you to think of one thing, one or two things. Number one, did the police investigate that person? And number two, were they cleared? Well, they were all cleared or were you to, he'd be sitting in jail, right? Okay, if the police cleared them, there's a damn good chance they didn't have anything to do with it. Makes sense. Okay, number one and number two, and you know I have videos on this where I show you the pictures of these guys like Rackstraw. They don't look nothing like Frank Morris, okay? He don't look nothing like the pictures of D.B. Cooper. He was 20. The people are on this Rackstraw thing, and they're fighting for it that he was D.B. Cooper because of just what I said. They don't want to admit that they were wrong. How could you get a picture of a guy 25 years older than D.B. Cooper and say, I mean, 25 years younger, excuse me, than D.B. Cooper and say, that's got to be him. 25 years younger, you don't think you could find that on the picture? It's because people want this person to be, they want their suspect to be the one so bad that when they look at the picture, they see him as the same person. And I look at them and I go, they don't have nothing in common. But I stood in front of this guy and I know what his face looks like. I'm not just looking at pictures. Pictures only have two dimensions. Yeah, I imagine that's upsetting when you know the truth. Yeah, yeah, it is. And then everybody's telling you something else and they're so off base. And you can tell that they just want it to be so that they can be the big heroes. The guy and a lot of people who think Kenny Christensen was cheap and he Christmas. The guy's too tall. He's too big. His head don't, is too wide. He doesn't look anything like Frank. And if you can find a picture of Frank Morris smiling, I will give you $10,000. And don't go out looking for it because it's the same lie. that The only lie I tell in my life, and it's because I know I'll never have to pay up. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you'll never find a picture of Frank Morris smiling because he never smiled. He was a psycho who was beat almost to death on a daily basis when he was a kid. He grew up with hatred in his heart and anger. He didn't smile about anything. And you look at all these pictures of Kenny Christensen, he's laughing. That's the first thing that I look for when someone tells me that uh, this guy was the ser serial killer that, you know, the Zodiac killer. If the guy's laughing, he wasn't D.B. Cooper and he wasn't, wasn't Frank Morris and wasn't the Anglin brothers because they never smiled either. But to answer your question, that's that's the main main thing that I say about these people. And, yeah, it stresses me out, but you got to get over it. I'm telling my story for those who want to listen. It, it's not imperative me, to me that the world knows. I really want them to because I think that if you understand my story, someday you may be walking across a parking lot. Three guys may pop up out of nowhere and you might say, this don't feel right. And you may turn around and go back inside and save your life. Whereas you may just walk on out there and end up in, you know, these people that want to kill people can be out there in that parking lot. Every time you walk out there, you don't know. Nowadays, a little more difficult because they know there's cameras everywhere. But back then they weren't. There was a they got a girl in a parking lot one time. 
and I this took me a I just put this together about a week ago. There was a one time I was walking, got out of my car to go inside of a building. I, I you know I think it was the courthouse, and there's a girl who got out of the car in front of me, and she was walking in front of me, and she had a really powerful New Jersey accent, and we're both headed for the uh, the um, elevator, of course, because we're going up in this building, whatever the building was. She keeps looking back and looking back and looking back. And all of a sudden she turns around and gets into this. I guess she took one of those defense, self-defense courses. She gets into a stance and yells at me, back off, back off. And I just was really angry that day. I think I was going to pay a ticket at the courthouse. And I told her something about, you know, you, you must be stupid or something. I mean, I'm sorry I said that, you know, I was, I was younger and everything. I was, you must be, you know, I was angry and must be really stupid because if anything is ever going to happen to you and I'm around, I'm the guy that can keep it from happening. And she turned around and looked at me and stepped over the other way. And I walked past her to go inside. And when I did, she turned around and bumped right into these three guys. They were following me in that parking lot. And, you know, this is one of those things that I still need more memories to come back because I seen her look it up and turn around, run right into John Anglin. And Frank said something to her that looked like he was saying, you should have listened to the guy. And I went on inside and I'm pretty sure they got her, but I don't know. You know, I, I, I that's all I can remember about it, but I don't know what my point was. I guess that, that I want people to understand because, uh, you know, you let your kid go from here to over there. You better not take your eye off of them. And you better know that you can fight or get that kid if you have to. And if you can't, then don't let him get over there. Because these guys can pop up out of nowhere and make somebody disappear in an instant. I know you have to think this poor guy had gone around all his life being paranoid about something like this. Yeah, it's true. But when you get me into anger mode about something like that, I don't think you want to be the one following me. <laughs> Do you know when Frank passed away? Yeah, around 2009, somewhere between 9 and 13. Uh, he, I was actually communicating with the Anglet brothers' family. There was a guy who was, uh, I think, common law married to one of the nieces of, of the Anglet brothers and lived there with them. And he was communicating with me, but he, wouldn't, he would tell me parts of the story. And you could tell he was really scared. He said, don't come down here. Don't come down here. Even if you bring a gun with you, it's too dangerous. Just because of the sheer number of these guys, there's a whole lot of them. And I'm like, don't worry, don't worry. I'm not going to show up. And he would tell me, he told me that he had, had found some pictures in there that related to the Zodiac thing. And I was like, get some pictures of it on your phone and send them to me. And he was going to do that. And he, you know, uh, he, then he wouldn't talk to me for a long time. And he would finally come back and talk to me again. And he wouldn't talk to me for a long time. Somewhere in there, evidently, they got his phone. The girl got his phone and started talking to me. And I ended up talking to what I think was one of the Anglin brothers' sisters. And they were saying things on the phone. And I kept this. This really angers me because I kept this on my phone. I tried to find somebody to help me get it off the phone and, and in print so that I could, uh, I would have it for future reference and I couldn't. And I was texting a cop who was sending me jokes and I was trying to be serious, but made me mad while I'm deleting his text. I end up deleting this whole thing. I had the guy's phone number and everything else because they told me one time that 
you're not going to be hearing from him anymore. I sent him a message, and they said, you won't be hearing from him anymore. I'm like, why? He goes, well, he went back to somewhere up north. Well, you know, what's that got to do with why wouldn't I hear from me? I think they killed him. I'll be honest with you. They, I think they killed him for talking to me. And, he, and they knew they found out that he had found these pictures that related to the Zodiac murders that those guys are keeping down there in Florida where, where they're staying. And anyway, the, the, the Anglin sisters had told me some things that were really incriminating. Like I convinced them that I was friends with these guys from being in Mexico and that uh, I wanted to talk to them. And they were like, well, come on down. We welcome you. Just don't bring any cameras or guns or anything. Yeah, no, I won't do that. I'll come on down. You're welcome here and that kind of thing. But I really got the feeling they didn't want to get me down there so they could kill me. <laughs> and uh, they were things like, uh, I, I mean, this is one of the first thing that really, really incriminates the whole family is when I said, look, I was a friend of theirs in Mexico City. And she says, hold on a second. Takes a few minutes. She comes back with a text that says they said they didn't know anybody, any Americans when they were in Mexico City. Really? What does that tell you, Darren? Yeah, what does that tell you? Number one, that tells you that the family knew they were in Mexico City all the, that time. It tells you, number two, that they're there because they just went and talked to him because they said he said. Okay, that's enough for me right there. Then I went down there and I saw him. I tried to get pictures and it started raining, so I couldn't get my camera out. But I went back later and I actually took a video of a neighbor who told me, yeah, I know those guys, Frank, uh, John and Clarence. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe this. And I got it on video, but I never uh, publicized the video because I'm afraid they'll kill the guy. So the Anglin brothers there. are still alive and still up to no good. They, are, they were three or four years ago when I saw them. That's wild. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. And well, you can tell me that I could stumble onto that, and the FBI can't find it looking for it. The FBI right now is playing this game with the Widners. You know who those are? No. These guys that claim are uncles that escaped from Alcatraz, and they're not even related to the guy. They're it was their daughter that married into that family. Uh, some kind of way or something like that. I don't know. Their their nephew married their his nephew or something like that. I don't know. But they're not related to him. But they've made a lot of money producing these little shows where they say, here's proof that they made it off of that island. Wow. And the FBI is going along with them to, just to make a show. The What's that guy's name? That big, fat, big, heavy set guy that <coughs> U.S. Marshal... Uh, who's handling the, the Alcatraz case said, I don't know if you have, I guess you haven't seen any of those shows, but he's communicating back and forth with the Widners and the Widners are saying we can prove it and that they made it, but they won't, you know, admit anything that makes it look like we know where they're at. And they know, they know where they're at. They know what's going on. And they're playing this game with the FBI to make money off of producing these little shows. Somebody told me they actually had a regular show going on on TV where they would, play this game and that Marshall would be on there and they're all making money doing TV shows, including the Marshall. I mean, I'm thinking, boy, that seems so, pretty corrupt. Yeah, it does because he, the Marshall's so blind that he really, he could be so damn blind. You really don't know that they're there. You know, I think, 
I think it just, he doesn't care, you know, because you got another thing you have to keep in mind. It's like, you know, you know, I'm a professional wrestler. I see it as professional wrestling. If they put a guy on and say, this is the best guy in the world and he's going to go out there and beat everybody and he's a good guy and well, everybody's going to like him. And he may be the biggest, he may be a serial killer in real life, but everybody likes him. Now you're going to get on TV and say something bad about him. Everybody in the country wants to throw rocks at you. And that's where I'm sitting at right now. Well, most people in this, even people who know nothing about this case, know that these guys are American icons. And they're like, wait a minute. You mean those guys that everybody likes, the ones that escaped from that prison somewhere? Was that at? What was that? Yeah, yeah, Alcatraz. They don't even know anything about it. But the media that has hyped it so much that everybody knows that these are a couple of famous guys who got arrested and put in the worst prison in the world and escaped from it. And they got put in there because they were playing with a toy gun out in front of a bank. That's the way people see this. And they didn't weren't playing with a toy gun. They were grown men and they tried to murder me the day before they went up there. And they took a gun they stole from my dad and they put it in a girl's face and said, fill up my bag with money or I'm going to splatter your brains all over the wall behind you. Those aren't little kids playing with a toy gun in front of a bank. Every single witness in the bank that went to the trial said it was not a toy gun. It was a real gun produced the toy gun. And these guys couldn't produce a toy gun. Now, if you really use a toy gun in a situation like that, wouldn't you have taken it to court with you? Absolutely. You know, I mean, come on. But but the media hypes it up to make these guys into heroes. Why don't I want them to be heroes? Well, because they killed all my friends and all my girlfriends. And there's some of them that I really, really liked. And I'd only just barely met them. And if I could get my hands around their throat, I might take care of the death penalty. How many <coughs> how many friends do you suppose that Frank and the Anglin brothers murdered? Friends of yours? I can think of about a dozen right offhand. And then uh, probably another half a dozen or a dozen that were questionable that I can't remember enough details to know about it. But Frank started listing them one day for me. You know, you remember that, that old, that old lady used to work at work with at the dairy queen, the dairy Inn, And I'm like, yeah, you mean whatever her name was. And yeah, yeah. Her. Like, well, what about her? No, no. I just wondered if you remembered her, <laughs> you know, and then he would say, you know, that girl you, you were dating during a certain time. Yeah, yeah, you know her. And, oh, well, you know, we, man, you guys didn't, you didn't bother my girl, did you? you didn't, no, 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 nothing like that. I just wanted you to know we know about her. You know, I'm in Mexico City with a guy that I didn't know had ever been to Florida, and I'm not figuring out how does he know all these people. What is it like to live with the fact that this guy murdered so many people that were close to you? And not and not having no one at all in my life because no one ever came up and said, hey, these guys were murder victims or they were even missing persons or anything. Some of them were people I just met, especially girls, and they would just not come to work the next day. And I'd go to their work to see them, and I don't know, she didn't come to work today. And, then, you know, I'd wait a few days, go back, no, nah, nobody's seen her, we don't know where she's at. And I'm thinking she ran off with another guy. You know, we were starting a little relationship and I'm thinking she, she found a boyfriend, ran off with him. And when he's telling me this story, he would be telling me things like, well, she's ours now. And I'm saying, you, you, you mean you, you guys? Yeah. 
And I'm thinking you guys took this girl. I mean, she must have liked having three boyfriends at the same time. I can't be three guys. I'm only one. You know, I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. He even told me one time, he said, of all the girls that we've got that were yours, <clears throat> there's only there's one that you could have helped. And he named her. He didn't name her name, but he explained the situation. You could have helped her. You could have helped that one, but the rest of them, you'd have probably got yourself killed. And, you know, I didn't know what any of that meant until just here recently when I started thinking, you know, why this guy with this kind of personality, I would escape from him on multiple occasions. What would he do after I escape? And then I started thinking he would have to look for another victim because they have to kill. That's their, it's in their genetics or whatever. I don't know. So then I start thinking about all the people who disappeared around that same time. And I'm like, yeah, they did kill somebody over there or made them disappear. Frank used to say we, we're ex he never say we killed anybody, but he said we're experts at making people disappear and without a trace. And I laugh about it and wonder why he's saying that to me. But you have to also remember that we didn't just sit down and have this conversation one day. This was over a period of 30 years, little pieces of the conversation at a time. It's and incredible that I you kept, have run into him over a period of 30 years. Really, really big coincidences. And I don't understand why, but... And then I'm here to tell his story because... I'm the only one who knows it, and most people either don't want to hear it or don't care or don't want to believe me. <laughs> I mean, what? Oh, I don't get it. I, don't, I just don't understand why my life was put together this way. But you got to take what God gives you. It must be frustrating knowing all of this, but feeling like sometimes. certain people won't listen to you. Yeah, sometimes, but you really start uh, understanding. I have the advantage of some of the things that Frank told me, you know, he would tell me things like they're not smart enough to figure it out. And those people are never going to be able to help you. They don't think like you and different things like that. And, sh you know, when I'm talking to these people trying to tell them about him, I start remembering all the things he said and going, damn, Frank, you were right. Crazy killer, but he was right about a lot of things. He understood a lot of things about people and propaganda which is why he promoted himself like that and stayed hidden and never got caught. Yeah, for some of the there was biggest unsolved gonna, crimes in the history of the United States. Yeah, and I, every time I see an unsolved crime now, I end up going back and looking at it and go, that was Frank. I was going to tell you about one, a black shoe repairman. I never told you that story <clears throat> because I think we're running out of time. If no one's showed up here right now, it's quiet, so I'm going to tell you the story. This really hurts my heart because... Uh, I went through this integration thing back in uh, the 60s and 70s, and I had friends in school who were African-American that, that I was sometimes the only person in school that would be friends with them. They were good people, but everybody else wouldn't talk to them because their skin was black. <coughs> and when I think about this, you know, Ray, uh, Frank told me he was a racist for a while. I don't know why he told me that. I mentioned that in my book. He, he, you know, I didn't like black guys or uh, Negroes or African-Americans, whatever he called them. I don't remember. Why are you telling me this? No, no, I just, just, you know, there was a time when I didn't like him. But then I got over that. So, and then he talked about that. He, when he was showing me that Halloween card where it says by knife, by gun, by fire, by water, 
And he's telling me, yeah, yeah, it could be by water. And what do you do? Water torture him? Well, yeah, it's a kind of torture, I guess. And he was talking about, because he knew that I saw him drown a boy. I saw those guys drown a boy. I hold him underwater. But when I saw him, I saw him holding something underwater and I thought it was a fish. And my buddy says, they're drowning somebody. And I looked the other way and I looked back and, you know, I heard Frank hand, Frank hand a knife to this guy and said, cut his throat. And I thought they were cutting a fish. I yelled out to you, what are you guys, you got a fish there? And he goes, yeah, we got a fish. But that's was Frank, one of Frank's code words. When they would go out to look for a victim, he called it going fishing. There's, I have a video on that about the Red Rider thing. But I want to back up a little bit. I was just getting ready to tell you about something. The shoe salesman. That really, yeah, this shoe salesman. I really want to tell you about this poor guy because I just figured it out and I haven't done a video on it yet. This guy owns a little shoe store on a corner, on a block in Louisiana, downtown. I don't remember where. It's a small town, you know, sheriff and everything are kind of like uh, Ku Klux Klansmen. But everybody kind of likes this guy because he's a nice guy. He goes to church. I think he teaches Sunday school and things. And he, <clears throat> and I may have that part of it wrong. I may, may not be remembering right. But I studied his story. And he, uh, ended up they ended up burning his shoe store down with him in it and you know i'm looking at this and i'll tell you the way i found this was i just typed in frank morris something i don't remember what and this guy popped up frank morris the black the gentleman's name was frank morris he was black frank told me for a while he hated black people and that's what Frank was alluding to. He was trying to con see if I could connect up the names. Well, I didn't even know Frank's name, so why would I connect it up? But he's a psycho, so, you know, it meant something to him. Not only that, but Frank had this word association thing. If he could get two words that were similar in two different situations, he figured they were linked by some evil force of his or something. Well, this gentleman had his name. I could see why Frank would get really angry about that. You know, we got to kill this guy. He's got my name. And he's a shoe repairman, which is what Frank did when he was in prison. He repaired shoes. That's how he knew how to make a raft out of raincoats that wouldn't leak. He knew about glue. He knew about sewing, canvas and leather and that kind of thing. But this poor gentleman, what happened was he, his place was suddenly on fire in the middle of the night. He runs out into the front room and he's going to go out the front door and someone's standing there with a shotgun, you know, get your ass back in there. And they use the N word on him. And the guy turned around and ran back into the back through the flames and came out the back door on fire. This poor guy made it to the hospital alive, died four days later. And he was burnt everywhere except for the soles of his feet. Oh my God. He didn't even God, have any terrible. He didn't even have it. Terrible. It's horrible. But that, you know, when I started reading the story, because they say the Ku Klux Klan did it. There's even a couple of guys who were in the Ku Klux Klan that said they did it. These were rednecks that wanted to sound like tough guys. Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers did that. They killed that guy because Frank didn't like it because he had the same name as him. He had black skin and he was trying to copy him by making shoes like fixing shoes like he did. You know, I mean, I'm thinking like a nutcase now, OK, because I'm figuring that's what Frank was thinking. And he would try to allude to that murder to me without going in depth on it. Just enough that when I started reading about it, I'm like, this is what he was talking about that day. That's in my book where I tell you about him 
<clears throat> not liking black people, but I couldn't figure out what he was trying to tell me. This is what he was trying to tell me about was about that murder. Cause I think he told me about every murder that he did, but in that kind of a way where, you know, it really wasn't much of a story, but it, it stuck in my mind for whatever reason. Yeah. He obviously liked to speak kind of in code and same uh, codes and clues. Yeah, exactly. Everything. He told me that everybody, I told him, I said, you man, you're all about codes and clues. And he goes, yeah, people tell me that. <clears throat> and I go, why? He goes, well, you know, I just don't want, you know, uh, I don't know what he said. If he said, I don't want people to know everything or something. I don't know what he said, but I'm thinking that what happened was he became very good growing up at not opening his mouth too much because he knew he was going to get beat up. So he would try to, with his, with his foster parents, they beat him a lot. He would try to, which is what made him into a killer. Uh, he would try to say minimal to keep the beatings to minimal. And he started learning how to talk in codes, clues to to keep from coming out and saying things that he knew was going to get him beat up real bad. Yeah, it sounds definitely sounds like he had a tough childhood. That's for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. They, uh, I mean, he was tortured, you know. And they, the thing that he said that made him the way he is. I say he said that he made it him into a killer, but he never told me he was a killer. He said it made this is what made me the way I am. And I go what? And I, I think I have a chapter in my book called the, the. Uh, the portal or the closet, something about the closet locked in a closet. Yes, that's it. Yeah. That's where he got his demons from because there was a portal in the back wall of the closet that would open up and he would go to hell and the demons would come out and be with him. Now, this is what he told me. I'm not telling you that I thought off all this crazy stuff. This guy would get beat to death. They beat him in the head. They kick him and throw him in there and smash his head into the wall. He may have been unconscious. He may have been anything, okay? But in his mind, that's where he connected up with the demons. And the demons told him, you need to kill somebody. I guess, because he told me that that's what made him the way he is. And then he, that, he, he really, really, if you remember that chapter, I tell you about how he went into this psychopathic rage and beating on the wall and kicking on the wall, saying they beat you and they kick you and they hit you. Talking about the abuse and the punishment, and then they lock you in that damn closet. He said it like that damn closet. Yeah, and then he took he said, it you out. Know what it's like? He took out his rage on all of his victims. Yeah, he, you know, because he said something about to me one time about I'm going to get somebody for something, and I owe you something about you. Are you sure you're not trying to get them for what happened to you when you were a kid? Well, as if to say maybe, but he didn't say maybe. And I'm like. Can't you figure out? I mean, these people didn't do anything to you. Why are you trying to take something out on them? And he goes, because something about they all need to pay. Uh, that's in my book. Yeah, I wrote it in there in the book where he said everybody needs to pay. Yeah. Yeah, that's in the book. So that gets that those ideas across kind of important, I think, when you're talking to a serial killer and you grow up thinking you have this crazy friend in Mexico City that don't make a lot of sense and you pretty much forget everything and Wow, man. <laughs> you know, I had one friend. I want to make a video on him. His name was Sergio Safos. This is one bad little dude. He was real muscular. He won bodybuilding contests. And we worked out in the gym together. And he was mean as heck. You know, he always tried to start a fight with me. One time we got into it. And he he he, he was a fan of uh, Bruce Lee. He had very fast reflexes. He never took any karate. But he copied the things Bruce Lee did. 
And he gave me that sidekick of Bruce Lee's, which was, I have had very, very fast reflexes. And he kicked me so fast, I couldn't, I didn't have time to block. I couldn't even see his foot and almost knocked me down. And I was a lot bigger than him. And I'm like, man, I went after him and he ran and then we laughed it off. But we were going to a club at that, that night. <clears throat> and uh, he comes into the gym one day and he goes, man, look what I got. And I went, he had a gun. Where the hell did you get that? And he goes, I, he said, somebody pulled, let me back up a little bit. I had been to his place and we were leaving. We were going to go to to work out after he said, come on over and we'll talk about something. I don't know what. And, oh, about the club we were going to go to. And, you know, when I, when I was leaving, these three guys kind of cornered, behind, cornered him behind his van and I couldn't see him. And I go, hey, sir, do you need any help? And he, he laughs and he goes, I don't need help with these. At, uh, I don't know what he called them, but it's something that meant they weren't nothing to him. And I, next thing I know, I see him driving away in his car and the three guys are walking away. I mean, he was a bad little dude. Well, he when he got to the gym that day, he said, he said, remember those three guys? Oh, yeah, yeah. And he goes, he goes, man, I, got, I went to get in my car and they're there and the guy pulls a gun on me. And I go, what are you doing? He said, I sidekicked it. And I, and what happened? He goes, they ran like they were really scared to death. And I go, so what'd you do? And he's laughing. He said, I grabbed the gun. I got in my car. And I go, man, he wanted to give the gun to me. I wish I'd have took that gun. But I was afraid I would be involved in some kind of crime because they he didn't report it to the police and he uh, and he had the gun. He threw the gun in the dumpster because he didn't want to have it around him. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, old Sergio, one bad dude, man. I, I want to look him up and call him and say, Serge, do you know you backed down and took a gun away from the Zodiac killer? <laughs> yeah, you should definitely let him know. I want to let him know, but Sergio is the kind of person that has, he has a personality that, you know, he'll start being friends with you again. And next thing you know, he's, he's always in trouble with the law because he's a, a violent, he likes to fight and he'll, he'll get you involved in that. Or if he can, he'll start a fight with you. So staying away from him might be a better way. To <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's calmed down any as he's gotten older or what, but. Well, let me ask you a few last questions since I don't want to take up sure. any more of your time. What is something oh, yeah. you want people to know about y your story and, and why they should believe you? Well, as I mentioned before, I want people to understand what the kind of personality goes into being these guys, because in my opinion, they're probably about as bad as it gets when it comes to serial killers and you know, if people study my stuff, they're going to understand how these people operate. And when they go places and they see somebody, they're going to go, could that be like him? Nah, maybe not. Well, don't take a chance. You know, walk around the other way. Don't take a chance. Just because you think that it fits something that I told you, don't go over there. You know what I'm saying? Maybe I can save some lives because I couldn't save the ones that they took from me. Then I didn't even know what happened to these people. They just disappeared. Or they would disappear later, and he would tell me about it. And I, I go back now and try to look them up on the Internet. I can't find them. But anyway, that's one thing. And the, you said, what else did you ask me about? Why should people believe you? Yeah, why should people believe me? Well, I think I've told you enough reasons that already. Um, because if you listen to my story, yeah, I don't have any. I can't throw any evidence in front of you that uh, that the police can use to convict 
But there's no way that I could come up with this much circumstantial evidence and be making it up. A hundred videos on YouTube and I purposely overlap one video with the other one. I try to tell you a little bit of the previous story in with the next one and the previous one in with the next one so that you can see that I'm not making this up. I'm pulling it out of my mind because it's been there all my life. Just like I've sat here for the last couple of hours talking to you about uh, all of this and I'm telling you things that you know you've read in my book. I'm telling you things that you know you've seen on my videos. You know, there's a lot of nutcases out there that want to tell you they know the answer to all these stories. How could someone come up with 100 videos and a book? Uh, this is one of the things that police use when they're interrogating people. One of the main ways that they, if they can't get this guy to, to incriminate himself, what they look for is, can he repeat the same story and get it right every time? Yeah. Because if they're lying, sooner or later, they're going to get it wrong. Now, some people say, yeah, but if you're a mental case, you might not, uh, you might be able to tell that same story over and over and over the same way. Well, mental cases, and I like to say mental cases don't usually write books, but Frank did it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I can't get out of that one. But mental cases don't usually graduate from uh, high school, college, and then go to school and get honors graduating as a doctor. That doesn't usually happen. And then on top of that, 100 videos of telling this story, and I might be wrong, might be 96, I don't know, but about 100 videos of telling this story and every single video links together and they, they, I don't go back and make mistakes, small mistakes. Yeah. Because it's, I'm bringing this from memory. Someone harassed me about something. You don't even know who, what the, what kind of airplane it was that he jumped out of. You know, if you ask me right now, I think it was a 727, but no, I don't know. And you know why? Cause I don't care. He jumped out of the plane. He told me about the story. He even told me what the wet spot was on the ramp when he jumped. That's the things that are important. Yeah, you're not the one that jumped out of the plane. <clears throat> yeah, and I didn't have to do all the preparation of getting the blueprints and reading them, which, by the way, he had the blueprints, to figure out how to get the ramp down. All those questions that uh, that people ask and uh, the FBI asked, that, you know, everybody thinks that he was a pilot because he knew how to get the he knew more about the plane than these guys did. It's because he, he got a set of blueprints. Where did he get the blueprints from? Either the guy that taught him to jump got them or, uh, or or Arthur Lee Allen got them for him because Arthur Lee Allen was in the military. I think he worked with that plane. You know, he was a, wrote codes or something like that. He helped Frank learn codes. And he was there with Frank at the Lake Berryessa attack, as you know from my, my book on the Lake Berryessa attack. Yeah, and I think it adds to your to your credibility. I mean, you're willing to respond to people asking questions. You're commenting on, uh, you're responding to comments on the YouTube videos and everything, also. Yeah, and you may notice that I have no fear. Definitely, <laughs> because, because you're not you're not going to outsmart me on this because it happened to me. It'd be just like, you know, what was the one favorite thing that really happened to you in high school that you can really remember? Did you play a sport or did you play in band or anything that you did in yeah, high school I that you still baseball. memorable? And one game where you hit a big home run or something yeah, I, and won the game. Yeah, I have a memory of it. Nice. Can you remember every single thing about that game, even what you had on your hot dog or whatever? No, honestly, I don't really remember anything else about the game other than the one moment. 
Yeah, but if you went back and started thinking about it and cherishing it, you could remember a lot of things about oh, it. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, and that's never going to go out of your mind. It's going to be there. And that's what uh, that's what all these things... And anyway, my point is, things that actually happen to you, uh, you they're easy to tell the story. If you were to tell the story, I guess I should say it this way. If you were to tell the story about you know, walking up to the bat, hitting that, and the way you felt. If you told that over a thousand times for the rest of your life, you'll never get it wrong. Yeah, I agree with that. But Okay, but if you were making it up to make me think that you were a great baseball player, guess what? Every time I go back and ask you about it, you're going to tell a different story. <laughs> Even It may only be very a little, depends on how good your memory is, but you're not going to tell that same story over and over unless you actually live through it. And that's why I'm not, I don't show any fear because I lived through it. I'm not, a, you're not going to trick me into, you know, once those guys hit me on that Tahoe 27 site and a, a barrage of people calling me a liar and I didn't have the information I need, needed to answer them only because I had just barely remembered and figured out who this guy was. <clears throat> well, I got enough information together now to make all the pieces of the puzzle fit and, uh, I'm not afraid to tell my story and I don't care about, I'm not worried about when I tell you a different part of the story next time that, that, that it's going to be different than it is this time. not going to be any different because I'm telling you what I remember of what happened to me. What I'm concerned about is before I actually get the word out there where I want to, I'm going to get so old, I'm going to start forgetting parts of it again. And then <laughs> it's going to really be hard to tell the story. Sometimes I go read my book or look at my own videos and go, wow, yeah, I had forgot about all of that. You know, I remember something about it, but then I watch and all the details start coming back to me. And then I remember even more things. I, it would do me good to, you know, I need to pay off my debts and get enough money coming in from this book to be able to sit down and write the next book and spend all my time, watch all my videos again so I can re-remember everything that I remembered. Because what happened was when I started writing the book, I, w I got, I would get this, uh, idea would come into my head. Hey, what happened that day? What did he say? And I would start writing it down. Blah, 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 blah. And one thing would lead to another. And I had this mess of facts that were all jumbled up. It took me years to put them in order. That's why I spent a lot of time on the internet trying to figure out the timeline. When did he say that? When did he say that? You'd have these, you know, maybe a half a page of an idea and then another half a page of an idea that really didn't fit together. The, the ideas in the half page fit and the other ideas in the other half page fit. But they didn't match each other. There was things in between. You know, I had, I'm putting down what I remember as I remembered it. Then I had to go back and put it in order. Well, I'm definitely looking so, forward to the next book. Yeah, I need a movie. I, I, if people could see what I saw. Great. some of the. Yeah, if people could see what I saw. Have you seen my trailer? The trailer that the Christian Faith Publishing Company put on YouTube about my book? No, I didn't see that at all. Okay. And I've shared that, but people just don't see it. You need to go in there and type in uh, Zodiac, uh, My Dance with the Zodiac Killer Christian Faith Publishing, and I think you'll get to see the trailer. The bad thing about the trailer is the, the actual video is great, but the picture they put on the front of it doesn't, it makes the Zodiac Killer look like Jack the Ripper. <laughs> and it's not the right, right story. So you, a lot of people see it and don't click on it to see the video. But when you get in the video, it makes a little bit more sense because of the way I tried to make them do that was there was a time when they almost got me in Mexico City and they got a girl that I was talking to a park and I was sitting there talking to a girl 
the next day I came back and a police officer started talking to me and they said that the girl had disappeared and that they had been killing someone who was killing people in this park. And they suspected that it was a, uh, more than one person. And he gave me a description that fit John Anglin and that sometimes they wore a mask and that, uh, they thought that they were following a wrestler around. And I told him I'm a wrestler. And he goes, you're, you're the one, you're the one. And I'm like, no, no, wait a minute. I didn't do, I didn't do that. And he goes, no, no, no. I know we know you didn't do it because you're too young. These guys are 20 years older than you or, or however much older they were. And, but we, but we suspect they're following a listener. You need to get out of here. You need to go. He said, you got, he looks at his watch. He says, I think I told you this story in, uh, in my book, you need, you got 10 minutes to get to the subway. If you don't get there and if you can get a cab and get out of here because these guys are going to follow you and they're going to kill you. And I go, what happens if I can't get either one? He goes, you're a wrestler. You can run, can't you? I go, yeah. He goes, you need to run all the way home. And I go, I don't know where the hell I live from here. And he goes, well, just run and ask people until you find your way home because these guys are going to follow you and you'll outrun them because they're older. <clears throat> but the scene was I'm sitting in this chair, uh, in a park chair in the middle of a, a concrete walkway and the policeman standing in front of me. There's a huge light down there at the end of the walkway and the light you know, at night, there's beams of light coming around this police officer who's talking to me, and I can't really see his face or his features that well because of all the light behind him and not in front of him. And he's telling me, you need to get out of here, this and the other. And all of a sudden, the beams of light start flickering, and I'm like, what's going on? And I look around him, there's John Anglin standing down there in front of that light smoking a cigarette. And the beams of light look like they're coming out of, from behind his body because they are out of a light, but it's every time he moves, they flicker, and he's playing games, you know, that Frank and him and Frank and the Island brothers would choreograph their murders and play with all of this stuff and then use it to, to drive people crazy before they kill them. And that's what he was doing right there. And he called the cop. I told the cop, I said, that looks like one of them. Cause I was telling him about these guys and he goes, yeah, yeah, that's what we think. That's what we think. <clears throat> and he goes, yeah, the Alcatraz, you're talking about Alcatraz. That could be them. And he went down there. I said, wait a minute, man. You got any You got any friends in here? And he goes, yeah, we got some friends. I said, you got another gun? I need to go with you. And he goes, no, I'm okay. And he pulls his gun out and he takes off. He went down there. He, he turned because John turned around and walked off of the concrete into the darkness and bushes and whatever. And he looked and looked like he thought he saw something. And he walked into the bushes and I heard a gun go off and a body hit the ground. And I heard a guy go, oh, you know, that... That scene, if you could have seen that with, as vividly as I did, that's what I wanted to recreate in that, in that, uh, what do you call it? The trailer? In that trailer. Yeah. But they didn't have that capability. That You need Hollywood involved in that. And you got to get some actors that look right. Well, I definitely love this to be turned into a movie. Yeah, me too. And I got up and I started running. And, uh... Because, uh, you know, I, I got up and I started to walk down. I'm going to go help this police officer. And then I started thinking, because I thought that he shot somebody. But then the thought occurred to me, what if somebody shot him? Now that person has two guns. And I'm going to go walking down there. I don't have a gun. So I decided to do what the police officer told me. I turned and started running towards the subway. And running, there's an archway there. And I ran through the archway and there stands Clarence Anglin. 
who I didn't recognize at Clarence Anglin at the time. But when I think back and look at the pictures, yeah, he looked a lot like Clarence Anglin. But the thing that uh, really rang the bell was he stopped like he was going to try to stop me. And I looked at him like, you know, you don't want to stop this train because I'm running through you. And he stepped back and let me go by, which Clarence had done that before to uh, keep from getting it in, into it with me. These guys were scared of me because I'd heard them before by accident when I was a little kid. I don't know if that's in my book or not, uh, bro. They hurt each other trying to kill me, you know. But anyway, <clears throat> I ran past him and I kept running. And I got out there and there's a taxi there. And I see the taxi and I go, hey, can you uh, give me a ride out of here? And, I got, and he said, no, I'm, just, I'm getting ready to get off. And I got in, I closed the door. I said, you need to get out of here because see that. I look back and here comes Frank. And I go, uh, I go, I think this guy's a killer and he's got a gun. And the guy, whoa, and he steps on the gas, and we drove off. Frank was reaching for the door of the cab to open the door. And I can't remember or not. I think he had a gun in his other hand, but I just can't remember. But the next day when I met him, still not knowing it's the same person, but I told him, that guy last night looked a lot like you. And he goes, no, oh, it wasn't me. I was here asleep last night. And he goes, you need you." you you need to be, you need to get out of Mexico because, uh, you know, we almost, we almost got you last night. You, know, you almost got me. I thought you said it wasn't you. Yeah, well, well, it wasn't me. I mean, you know, somebody almost got you. It's, you know, you, you need to get out of here. You're going to end up dead. Okay. Imagine that. I'm trying to figure out what all that means. Are you scared for your life nowadays? No, I was at first. I really wasn't scared. I've never been scared for my life except for one time. I'll tell you about that sometime. <clears throat> with these guys but uh the the i was scared for my family's life when i first started writing the book and i was afraid of something like there's a freeway out in front of my uh place of business here i was afraid you know i would walk outside and scan the freeway and scan the parking lot to see if anybody's out there pointing a rifle at me you know but after a while i when i figured out that frank's dead that kind of uh calm the whole thing, but I was still worried about the Anglin brothers. But at the same time, I had already figured out that the Anglin brothers couldn't do any of this without Frank's genius brain. So I wasn't worried too much. Then I saw the Anglin brothers. When I, once I saw my, you know, I felt like I was in control or something. And uh, Clarence Anglin is, is deaf and almost blind. Frank, uh, John can't walk too good because I hurt his leg one time when he tried to stop me in my car. I ran over him. And he also heard it when he jumped over a fence there at Alcatraz and uh you know John has to kind of baby Frank around because he can't see any I mean Frank but John has to baby Clarence around because he can't see or hear very well and you know I drove past him and I went down the road turn around and come back I was going to get out and start talking I thought what am I going to do I don't know I'm going to get out and talk to him remember me from Mexico and see what they do I'll just stay far enough away that I can jump in a car and drive off if they pull a gun and I see John, it started raining, and I see John helping Frank, I see John helping Clarence get up the steps. Frank wasn't there, okay? I keep saying Frank, but he wasn't there. Helping John get up the steps and get into this um, house that where they were at. And that, <clears throat> that pretty much sealed it for me. I wasn't too much scared anymore. I'm re I, I wrestled three matches last weekend, professional wrestling, in 110 degree heat out in the sun. I carry a gun when I think I might need it. And 
I wouldn't mess with me, okay? So they better not. <laughs> but I don't think they can. Yeah, especially if they're as, as old as they yeah, are. These guys these are, days, they're, they're, these guys okay. are 90, and Frank would be about 93 or 94, and I, I'm sure he's dead because he left them down there, and he wouldn't have left them unless he knew he was going to die. And he went, I, my, the message that I got from the Anglin sisters was that he went to Washington to stay with a niece or a nephew who I think, a niece or a cousin who I think is a girl that I used to play with in Minnehaha Street, and they, that's where I first met him. That uh, story is in my book. Remember, they tied me to a post, and they threatened to cut my throat and cut me in little pieces. Yeah, yep. Minnehaha Street, the, the chapter on Minnehaha Street, and that girl, she was five and I was five, and I believe that he went to live with her in his last days and went to the hospital because of lung tumors using someone else's Medicare. They stole somebody's identity, so they're probably getting a check and everything else. <clears throat> Use the guy's Medicare to go to the hospital and Medicaid, probably got Medicaid too, and either died or got close to dying and, and got a hold of the Anglins and told them, come up here and get me because I'm not going to live much longer. We got to go up to Washington and take care of Earl Cossey, Ed Cossey. Because Frank was really adamant. When I first met him, I was a little kid. I had no idea what he was talking about. He kept telling me with this angry voice, I'm going uh, to, I'll get that guy if it's the last thing I ever do. What guy? That damn shoot rigger. What do you mean? What? Ah, oh, that shoot rigger. He put the, because if you remember my story, you have to read my book. He couldn't get the, he couldn't get a hold of the ripcord because it rip was around cord. behind the parachute. And they say things about that in the, in the FBI files about this case that they figure he died because he could have never, where that ripcord was at, Ed, Earl, Ed Cossey told him they, he would never been able to pull the cord. They, Ed didn't tell him that. They figured that because where he told him it was at, he probably couldn't find it because he wasn't an experienced jumper and he, uh, he would have hit the ground. And he almost didn't find it, but he did. You know, that's As you know, it's in my book, but... Anyway, gee, how did I get way out of there? Oh, oh, yeah, well, he was going to go. Uh, I think that he told him, we're going to go up there and get that guy before I die. Because he always he told me, if it's the last thing I ever do before I die, I'm going to get that shoot rigger. And I one day, you know, maybe a week later, he told me, I'm going to get that damn guy. What guy? That guy up there in Seattle that I told you about. And I go, what are you, you going to mean you're going to get him? And I made a joke out of it. I'm like, yeah, you're going to get him. What are you going to do? I'm going to kill him. That's the only time he ever used the word kill around me. But it was so far from when he had told me the story, I didn't even relate it. It was the same two people. And then when I found out the guy had his head bashed in, I'm like that, Frank. And then went up there and they killed that guy. And it was 2013 that, that he they killed him. And somewhere around in that time, I'm figuring it's when Frank died because he knew he was going to die pretty soon anyway. And when he died, they buried him up there at, at Lake Tahoe with Donna Lass because he was some kind of psychopathic in love with her. So that's where Frank is buried, the that's, hijacking money and Donna Lass? I think so. I think so. My studies and everything. And some of the hijacking money he told me is in Florida. He said is down there in Florida. You might want to go look in that park you used to play in when you were a kid. And I go, really? He goes, yeah, you know that one place where the big rocks are at that you used to sit on the rock? And I'm like, yeah. In my mind thinking, how does he know all this? I thought he was psychic or something, you know? I'm 
like, how does he know all this stuff about me? He goes, I, I you, uh, he goes, I said, yeah, I remember this rock because it was this big rock that sat on top of another rock and it had a carved out place. And I, we were little kids and I used to tell my sister, look, I'm a king, sit down here and you could be the queen. And these were all our royal subjects because there were a lot of little trees around there and brush around a, a water a pond or something. And we'd joke around about our royal subjects and everything. I don't know what. Well, that rock, he told me, you know, look at that rock and see if anything's changed. So when I started figuring all this out, I went down there, I look at the rock. The rock has been turned over and laid beside the other rocks that it used to sit on top of. And I'm pretty sure that money's underneath that rock. Oh, you got to go see if you can get under there somehow. Well, yeah, well, but to see the, there's oak tree roots all around there that would have to be, you couldn't just dig in there to get it you would have to you need a backhoe and you're going to need a chainsaw to cut the roots because they're big big oak tree roots like like cutting trunks out of trees and i think that he he saw that he dug a little hole there he put the stuff down in there he put some dirt on top of it and then they flipped this rock which is so big you wouldn't think three guys could flip it over but you know these guys were in leavenworth they they got up every morning and broke rocks all day they know how to work with rocks he told me that they know how to work with rocks and I think they flipped it over and put it in place on top of that, knowing that nobody's ever going to go under that, go look under that rock. So I know where it's at, but it's a case of trying to talk somebody into, and I don't have enough connections in Tampa anymore to find anybody that can say, you know, that guy, W.D. Brown, if I could have found him, that police officer, and said, hey, I figured the story out, and here's what's going on, and I know that money's over there. Can you got any friends? He could have connected me up, and they could have. They go down there with a backhoe, lift that thing up, dig a little bit and see what they can find. Hey, I got a patient coming. I got to go. Okay. Um, let's just leave this window open. Where, where can okay. people find you, Dave? Uh, they can find my videos on YouTube by tapping in David Gold, Zodiac Killer. And no, I wasn't the Zodiac Killer. And they can find me on Facebook by typing in David Kuchar, C-O-U-T-C-H-E-R. And... Uh, Look for the David Kuchar that, you know, talks a lot about wrestling and has a picture, wrestling picture of himself on there. You can look up Far Gym, P-H-A-R-R-G-Y-M, or Gold Chiropractic Clinic. I have a site for each one, and you can connect up with me there, and I'll be glad to talk to, you, to them about whatever they want to know about the case. But don't make any assumptions and do your homework and study as much as you can on it before you start asking me a bunch of insinuating questions. Okay. I get, I just got another one last night where somebody comes in and says, you knew all this stuff about these guys and you never went to the police. You know, I told him, I said, don't, you know, before you make an assumption like that, watch a few more of my videos. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks for coming on, Dave. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for hanging out with me and Dave today. Be sure to pick up a copy of Dr. Kucher's book, my Dance with the Zodiac Killer, Stalked by a Psycho Killer for 30 Years, Volume 1. He has also posted dozens of videos on his YouTube channel, David Gold. If you're anywhere near Far Texas, then be sure to visit Far Gym and the Gold Chiropractic Clinic. You'll find links to all of Dave's stuff in the show notes. If you have any questions about what you've heard on the show or you want to keep up with the D.B. Cooper case... You can follow us on Facebook, we are The Cooper Vortex, or Twitter at dbcooperpodcast, or email us at dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget, please leave us a review wherever you listen to the show.
Thank you to Dr. David Kucher for taking time out of his busy day to tell us about his relationship with Frank Morris. Thank you to Russell Colbert for taking time out of his busy day to make this show. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex. Vortex.